I think for Munster, for them in order to get a performance and a result, they need to concentrate on how well they played over the last eight weeks since that kind of post Six Nations win. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the rugby channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, it's bang on half past seven. It is Tuesday, the 24th of May. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. We're here with you all the way through until 10 this morning. If there's anything you'd like to get off your chest, the hashtag is OTBAM. And uh, we're rerunning all of the audio that we had from the day that the Saipan news story broke. And we're basically putting our feet up and just running that show as a little... A little piece of time capsule from history, because that's all anybody wants to talk about at the moment, isn't it? Have you been stopped in the street, be, uh, being asked, "You're the guy"? Uh, mix it, mix it. Uh, no, no. That's a, a, you, a are, that, that's that's the, that's the big ambition today. Actually, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's stopped in the street. Prove once yeah, and for all, finally, that Mick McCarthy was wrong. Twenty years and one day later, uh, three people in a studio finally came to the conclusion of who was right and who was wrong. So we've. Uh, Knocked our heads together and came up with all the answers. Colin Bowie's also here this morning. Colin, good morning to you. Morning, guys. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to finding out who was right in two hours' time. What, uh, what, what age were you? I was um, 13. Oh. First year in school. Seminal on crutches, in a man's on life. On crutches for the summer. Oh, another summer on crutches. Accident the first prone. Of, the first of two. Right. You just know about both now. <laughs> yeah, I was on you wouldn't crutches. have got a letter signed by Roy Keane that summer. Sorry? You wouldn't have got a letter signed by Roy Keane that oh, he would have been too busy. I just got him before um, I mean, a hectic period. Yeah. He, was, he was busy writing books and making DVDs and ads. We'll get to those in a minute. But uh, So, you're Team Cork, Team, team Keane all the way? No. Uh, there was, I think there's a bit more nuance to it than that. I was talking to, to older, <laughs> older relatives of, uh, of mine uh, and I was asking them what was it like at the time conversing as adults in Cork. And no one was saying, adult about this, by the way. He, uh, was saying, he was saying people people genuinely fell out over which side of the fence you were on. Yeah. Because um, I think in Cork it was a bit dangerous to go against the man himself. But a lot of people, like everybody around Ireland, thought you know he should have played. And a lot of people thought he was completely right not to play. Well, it's funny how far football has fallen in that people kind of don't see the World Cup as something that we should have an interest slash involvement in. But like there was a legitimate sense that we were going to have an interest and involvement in the World Cup. To to put a little bit of context on it, Lenny Abramson made an ad for Carlsberg where we won the World Cup in Jason McAteer's mm-hmm. dream. And it's fair to say it captured the zeitgeist in much the same way that Lenny Abramson captured the fucking zeitgeist at the start of lockdown. That's how <laughs> that's how all encompassing that ad was. That's yeah. how excited we were about it. Brilliant ad. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, and it was the, like proper CGI before like CGI. It was like, how did, how did we, we just scored against Brazil? What is that called? And, um, you know, we all got a little carried away because of that. Well, why, not? why not? That's the whole point. Well, we're uh, the best player in the world. Yeah. The best player in the parents. world. Who was better in 2002 than Roy Keane? Ronaldo. Zidane? Ronaldo was on one knee. Ronaldo got World Player of the Year that year. Still on one knee. Yeah. Yeah, Zidane probably going into the World Zidane, Cup. He going scored the volley for uh, Real Madrid against Bayer Leverkusen the Champions League but, final weeks before that. But Roy Keane's in the conversation. Got in the conversation, yeah. Also, in his position, possibly. Also, that France team in 02, I mean, they 
collapsed before the World Cup. Yeah, where I'm saying, uh, yeah. you, like, well, we, I think at Saipan, you're you're talking Zidane, the best player in the world. You're talking France's World Cup favourites. I think there was still uh, like we we knew that it's Ramon Dominic is their mm-hmm. head coach, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we knew that the guy. Like, I think by that stage he'd already proposed to his like astrologer misses right on I, TV I'm not familiar with the astrologer misses no um, that was later I'm, I don't think it was oh that was later are I'm you sure late. anyway look I would have had a fight with you in the pub about who's the, who are the best players in the world like and it sounds like you still would have that fight I mean I probably would I can't remember any of the details though That's <laughs> <laughs> I think around 1999 2000 I would definitely say it would have been the best well, player in the world I think 2002 anyway either way in that era right so we we were we were losing the run of ourselves as we are at 7.34 this morning. Feel free to lose the run of yourself this morning with us. We're going to come back to this a little bit later on. Um, are we going to start with the, the successful predictions that everybody had for the Premier League? Yeah. Well, on day one of the Premier League season just gone, Team OTP gathered and gave their predictions for the Premier League season ahead. So we went top four in descending order, the final bottom three, the league's top scorer, the player of the season, and the first manager to be sacked or leave. Um, some interesting standout calls here. Tommy Rooney. I don't know if you have this article in front of you, open guys, but Tommy Rooney, who did he call to win the Manchester league? United. Of course it is. Amazing. United to win the league. And I can't find any sign of Tottenham Hotspur in this top four by anyone. Also noting uh, absences of Owen Sheen and Jurgen Roy in these predictions. Yeah, I, I, I did ours on air. Exactly, yeah. No one, no one dug them out. Yeah. I, I said it yesterday, I predicted Chelsea to win the league. Probably Lukaku to win Golden Boot because that's why I was predicting Chelsea to win the league. So both of those blew up in spectacularly awful fashion. I'd say, I'd say you picked Timo Werner to be Golden Boot. No, the, my, I changed I'd to Timo Werner after it became obvious that Lukaku was crap. <laughs> Lukaku was the most prominent call for top scorer. Uh, by everyone. Player of the season, Jack Grealish, Stephen Kisby Green. But uh, myself and Philegan, correct bottom three. Right. Didn't look like it was going to be that way. Prize for that. Profit, yeah, I do. Profit, profit <laughs> I brought this up. <laughs> I was very impressed with that. But nobody got the uh, top four correct. And nobody called Son to but get joint uh, top goal scorer. I presume most people. A different time back then. Yeah. I'd say a lot of people. Th- how many people left Liverpool out of the top four? Or had them in? Uh, Liverpool are, I think. Ubiquitous. I think everywhere. they are everywhere. But nobody would have, was tipping them for the Premier League title at the start of the season. So uh, everybody was right. Yeah. Did correct. I not tip them in our in our? Did we not do Christmas crystal ball? Oh yeah, but like that's different. Did I not tip them for everything? I think I did. You probably did, but like that's Christmas. And I know it was post Christmas where they went on. A, well, I mean, we on. actually record that in November just to open the kimono a bit. Yeah. Player of the season, <laughs> Bruno Fernandez. By God. First manager to call Patrick Vieira. A few people called that. Well, yeah. I it's think it made, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. At the pre- so I, and I think he has massively outperformed expectations and now I'm kind of in love with Patrick Vieira ever since he rooted him out of the hole. Um, do you know what's absolutely mad is that only two people called for Zisco Munez to go first this season. The Watford manager. Why, did we, first, why didn't we all go for him? That, was he first gone or did Nuno go before him? No, he was first. Was he, yeah. yeah, yeah. It actually took a while for a manager to go this season. And then once he went, the domino started. I thought Son Dyche would go first. But he did go. He did go eventually. Nathan Murphy got correct top goal scorer, which is frustrating. He also called Wills to go down, though. Oh. Bit of a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, um, I can I can see the I can see the lack of the, all that lack of Spurs love that you talk about there. There's I think no that Spurs. was vind, that yeah. was vindicated for half the season. 
Mm. Uh, I think to, to have suggested that Antonio Conte would have been Tottenham manager at the end of the year and Harry Kane, the Harry Kane situation uh, wouldn't have unsettled them beyond the, the, the point of not qualifying for the Champions League. I think that that's an all right shout. If you're trying to embarrass people this morning, Colm, you're not uh, you're not doing a very good job. No, I'm not trying to embarrass. Why would I try to embarrass colleagues? No, I'm just bringing it up what we all talked about at the time. Uh, it just actually goes to show how great a job Antonio Conte's done because halfway through the season, you would have thought, yeah, it's absolutely spot on that nobody called for Spurs to be anywhere near this top four. And he's come in and changed the whole place around. And to me, it still feels like he doesn't even want to really actually be there. And he's doing a great job in spite of what he actually feels about the place. So, uh, yeah, no Spurs to be seen. Romelu Lukaku dominated top score. A lot changed as the season went on. It was a different time back in August 2021. Uh, it was. It was slightly different. Um, heading into next season, will the prediction be fairly similar? The teams who come up will be the teams who go down? Is there anybody who... I mean, is it going to be Manchester City to win the league? That's why I think Man United fans missing a bit of a trick here. What's happening is the establishment of a single hegemony. And if it wasn't for Liverpool over the last couple of years, everybody would be saying the Premier League has gone to the dogs because of the money. Now, maybe Newcastle will be able to, over the next couple of years, put it up to Manchester City. Rejoice. But, but that's what's happening here. So if Ten Hag is not the man... Man United fans are staring down the barrel of Manchester City being the best team in world football year after year after year after year after year after year after year. I, I disagree. The I only di- thing stopping them is Jurgen Klopp is the little boy or is it a little girl with his finger in the dike. Manchester United will come back and win a Premier League title at some point to put the finger in the dike. In the next the 20 years. Yes, maybe. Uh, well, like, I mean, we, we always say that, you know, it's... It, it's the amount that you're spending on player wages that dictates where you finish in the table. Manchester United, uh, according to spot record, are number one, top of the table, according to wages handed out. There will come a point over the next, I want to say, five years where being number one in the wages table will be reflected in Manchester United's on-field performances. I know the last 10 years don't support that point and there's a big body of evidence there over a full decade of action. But surely... The odds are in their favour. The papers were saying they're trying to take 80 million a year off their wage bill uh, next year. I don't know how, sorry, I don't know if, if that's 80 million in, in contract life. I don't know what the figure is. And the other thing about SpotTrack is it's kind of made up. It, it's not It's not a, It's not not an exact science for sure. It, like this is for 2021, 2022. So this could have been done months ago and like total salaries, 208 million pounds and Manchester City in second at 142 million pounds. So that's the, the magnitude of the difference there. So... Um, if it's kind of made up, <laughs> um, you don't really have a, a leg to stand on, obviously, but maybe maybe the rankings are correct. Uh, the 2002 World Cup was special, says Shane. I remember watching Ireland-Germany in our school hall. Would you watch it in school, both of you? Yeah, I think that's probably the... the I watched it at home. Watched it, at home. it absolutely was a school. There, there was a mini Saipan that broke out in our school year after the Germany game because there was a guy in... Class oh, you were in primary school, that's what you were watching in school. Yeah, why? Was secondary school last uh, thing? School was out. Ah, school was out sorry, for of course, yeah. What, what, what class are you in? Uh, I don't know, maybe second class or something like that. But I remember there was a guy in uh, the room watching it with us who had a Keane jersey, Robbie Keane jersey. And there was a guy in our class called Keane. And we went outside after Robbie Keane scored his goal against Germany. And there was this massive fight about who would be Keane. A guy who's actually called Keane or... The guy with the Robbie Keane jersey. I can't quite remember who won, but I remember it being first in Saipan. It was it was it was properly tense. So that's that's what that inspired. But for primary school people, it was very much keen on keen hate. Keen on keen hate. 
it was television on wheels. Uh, one room, we didn't have a school hall, into the biggest classroom. And uh, yeah, re- remember it like yesterday. It's, it's one of those things that you can pluck out from that era. Did the class go mad when Robbie Keane scored? Oh yeah, it was like incredible. Pylon style. I don't think it was pylon. I think we were very kind of refined, well-behaved children. But uh, we enjoyed it in our own polite way. And did you know enough about football in second class to be able to like sit and watch a full 90 minutes? Well, we were definitely minutes. there. We were definitely there for the Robbie Keane goal. So right, but you're mostly picking your nose and drawing pictures, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> or <laughs> passing notes or whatever other kids do. probably didn't have even got to no, that stage. Yeah, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I've just been told this and I didn't even watch it, you know? Maybe, yeah. maybe we were actually napping. Maybe that was nap time. Uh, the in 2002 we had a great team says James uh, Given, Finnan and Duff were in the Premier League team of the season if you add both Keynes Hart, Stalton etc then that's a spine to take on any side at the World Cup indeed but um, Steve Finnan wasn't first choice because you know Gary Kelly was such a good presence uh, I think he might have been the first one to get a round of applause in for Mick and that got his place in the in the team it was like I'd not say uh Gary Kelly wasn't a good footballer, but by that stage, Steve Finnan was better than him. Mm. Uh, Dara there in the comment makes a really good point. Uh, just on the, the the fact that we're coming back to this, he says, the fact we haven't been to a World Cup in 20 years just adds to the Saipan fiasco. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder, does that like uh, enhance the sense of pain? It definitely does. Like uh, there, there was definitely just huge FOMO. Uh, I can remember from the, the 06 campaign in particular, obviously 2010 comes with, with its own sense of heartbreak, but it, it just kind of felt that after 02, it was like, this is every summer for us now. Yeah. This is great. And then it's just every year, your childhood and the, the potential for a great summer of watching Ireland at a tournament just gets taken away. Say we'd reached the quarterfinals in 02, right? Which is not beyond the band's possibility at all. Say, say that had happened. If, if Keen, Does it have a, a big impact? Or if we were to, if we reach a semi-final, does it have, a, it, does it have an, a lasting legacy in terms of some kids who go on to be great athletes choose soccer instead of choosing Gaelic football or rugby? Is there something that happens, or is it nothing? Is it I just happen after Italia ninety, after the quarterfinal? It might. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that. Like uh, you would say, yes, it did. You would say that yes, there was a the the like the the team that Brian Kerr brings to the Euros underage, like uh, and brings to the World Championships underage is kind of maybe a bit of that legacy. I don't know. Like, and was there no possibility that that FAI anyway like as as bad an organisation as it was would have been able to benefit from it I don't know yeah. well, that's what I was just going to say is that you, it probably would have been in the hands of the people who actually run football in the country to capitalise on it and, and maybe they couldn't have screwed it up it was it was so big like say we reach the semi-finals and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened like well we were a penalty two out away from that possibility and then South Korea in the quarterfinal would have screwed us over we were not we were not getting past South Korea you weren't they, they were guaranteed to a semi-final place yeah 7.45, calling all cycling enthusiasts. Skoda are the main official official main partner of the Tour de France. And to celebrate on OTB Sports, we have a once-in-a-lifetime giveaway. This amazing prize is a VIP trip to stage 13 of the Tour de France from the 14th to the 16th of July, including flights and accommodation for one winner plus a partner. All you need to do for a chance to win is to make sure you're available to travel from the 14th to the 16th of July. It's not transferable. It's not changeable. You've got to be able to go because you're going to go and see the 13th tour, 13th stage of the tour. Just let us know who this uh, Carrick and Shore cyclist is who famously won the final stage of the Tour de France in 2020. So it's not the original Carrick and Shore cyclist. It's the latter day, uh, late stage uh, Carrick. Who's this? 
And then, yeah, just I, I just couldn't believe it happened. And then, yeah, the, the, the picture where I'm looking at the big screen, it was like, <laughs> did this just happen? Let us know by tweeting at Off The Ball with your answer. Each daily winner wins a €100, one-for-all voucher and a Skoda cycling jersey and will go into the draw for the grand prize. Best of luck. Skoda drivers, for another chance to win, check out skodaservice.ie. Reminder, of course, uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Right. Uh, Roy Keane wasn't just um, a world-class footballer. He was also a world-class hype man. Oh, without question. The, the, and the hype around the 2002 World Cup, which most people will remember, was, was extraordinary. Just in some of the, terms of some of the figures, just reading an, an Irish Times business article yesterday, uh, they said 7UP has signed Roy Keane up in a €750,000 nine-month promotional deal. And Carlsberg is continuing its relationship with Jason McIntyre with a new €1.25 million Euro, uh, campaign. So just back to Roy Keane, he says he's not exactly a stranger to Ireland-specific product endorsements. He appears in full Eastern Warrior regalia in Aircom's brand advertising. We may as well have a look at uh, the uh, Eastern Warrior regalia, which everybody will remember. and Irish soccer go further like for, for me it was, it was Carlsberg and the Samurai ad which were the two for me at the time that really stick out I don't, I don't remember the Samurai ad being as ubiquitous like I, obviously it got killed as soon as Saipan happened so it would have been on in every ad break during the whole World Cup instead there was like I remember the Mastercard ads the two um, uh, balls yeah exactly always talking about who's going to win and it's always the Germans and you're like that Germany team was completely shit like yeah. they were awful Oliver Kahn and that was it basically um, but Keane's an actor you can see in that he like really he really wants to be an actor he likes that stuff he's dressed as and he's he's got the sword and he's like not he's not in any way uh, not giving of himself in that thing yeah he like totally embraces the absolute madness of that that's not like oh uh, I just missed a penalty oh I like these pizzas that's none of that, none it, of that stuff with him. It's not Patrick Harrington swing shirt stuff. <laughs> no. It's, 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 it's genuine uh, Hollywood stuff. So, to continue from this article, he appears in full Eastern Mario regalia and Air Comes brand advertising. Also as a crisp stealing leprechaun for walkers. Again, something that people will remember. Have a look. tasting crisps are now available in Ireland. We think you'll be as keen on them as Gary is. <laughs> I don't really remember that one as much. Like obviously I it's been shared on YouTube so much over the years. Oh, I remember it. I'm just imagining the directors and all these ads going through keen beforehand exactly what this is what I want you to do right. This is it. And I'm just imagining him his levels of enthusiasm. But I think how reticent he is. I think 
he's not reticent at all. That's my point about this. He loves all that stuff. Do you think that's absolutely 100%. Look, you, you can't get that, you can't fake that. Like, you can't, he, he's exactly. not coming in and being an asshole all day and then doing his 10 seconds and then taking the cash and, and leaving. He's enthusiastic, interested, curious about that stuff. Like, because it's completely out there. I, like, the next one, what's the next one? Well, the the next one, uh, we, we don't have, I actually have the Kit Kat uh, one, but there, there is one where he is doing a needle point as a part of, you know, Kit Kat, take a break. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, Roy Keane out of character. But then the other thing, which kind of was the whole point of this Irish Times article, was his uh, endorsement and his connection with uh, with 7up. So this is a, a pretty basic one. This is the, the 7up television ad that ran that summer, actually. Get selected by 7up this summer and you could play football with Roy Keane. If you're 7up for it, simply spot the ball. How you play it is up to you. Get selected with 7up. This is this like a huge uh, campaign that was just off screen as well. There was uh, billboards up around Roy Keane and the 7up campaign. It's very, very hard to get good images of this. But uh, from a Guardian article, there is uh, an image of the 7up campaign being defaced after a side pan. You can see Roy Keane's face cut out. With the two little builders in it. Builders up there. They had to take down some of those um, billboards because of the fact that it, it was just a health and safety risk that people were climbing up on them and, and chopping out Roy Keane's face from these, which obviously is just one of the countless stories of mania around the time. Uh, like Just a couple of other bits from that. Um, they said, um, I can't quite remember what it was, the, the exact bit, but basically they were making the point of up that they will stick by Roy Keane that they had printed so many cans they had... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they had printed off yes, so many billboards they can't really wholeheartedly endorse right his decision now. to uh, you know do whatever happened yeah but like just a, a, a mm, commercial give me some of that sweet sweet lemon and lime yeah <laughs> a, com- a commercial beast around that time to say yeah. the least and, and um, I'd say I'm, I don't know did everybody pay the full whack or, or is it like was some of it contingent on him playing the football match I, wonder, I don't know yeah. I, it's maybe it sounds like Michael Kennedy was a bit of a genius as a lawyer so maybe he just got all the money anyway um yeah, I, look, I don't know. I don't think he was. I don't. I think he wouldn't have been reticent at all. And you can see in the the Skybet ad that he's doing at the moment that like he fully embraces all that stuff. Mm. Do you think he's a collaborative uh, partner in all of the process? Hundred percent. Do you think he uh, inputs his own? I think I should do this there in the samurai ad. Uh, and I think I should wink at. Uh, Gary Lineker. Well, I'd say the, the wink is obviously in the script. Yeah, but do you think, you know, say he so I'll just give him a cheeky smile and then Roy comes back and says, why don't I give him a wink? I don't think, I don't, I don't think he could was you, just Could like, you see him suggesting yeah. ideas for himself? Yeah, do you, oh, you think he's like brooding and dark and annoyed and angry the whole way through? Not in, not in uh, real life, as we've uh, have come to learn more and more, but I would have thought with strangers, I think that's the whole interest with Keane, that he would have been quite reluctant to... Uh, come out of his shell I think maybe. he might have respected the people he was working with and so therefore given them due deference and he's not he's not being forced to do this like if he's if Walker's asked him to come in and wear a leprechaun costume they are costume, paying him a lot of money oh yeah and he, and he kind of rejects the kind of no, uh, like silliness of it, he said, could just say no a lot of footballers just go through the motions in these ads but he wants to do it properly like everything he was doing no, I but, think he enjoyed it I think he enjoys the acting that's so, the thing and I think he enjoys playing the character on Sky and I think he definitely enjoyed playing the, the character at Man United like it, it was it was it's an inflammation of who he is, of his personality. Well, he I, had a character at that time, the shaved head version of himself, which he said uh, in, I think, his second book was a character. He was playing a version of himself when he was shaving his head so for three years all, straight. All, between 1999 and 2002, he just constantly had the shaved head. And also, interestingly, is that we have, what, 
four ads from that summer alone are in there thereabouts 2002. And I think after Saipan, I don't remember him being in many more ads as a player. I think that was kind of it for him in terms of his commercial activity. Because he only had three, four more years left in his career. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, he was making bank while it was there. Was the was the the Pepsi stuff before that? There was there was like a, a United one. I know he wasn't in that. Yeah, yes, I know that one. You're in the Edgar Davids yeah, era, yeah, he yeah. wasn't in that. I don't think. But oh, you're right. That that was before though. Yeah, I think that was before around the Champions League win. Yeah. All right. Mm. It's um, seven fifty four. Colm, you've been keeping an eye on the start of the tennis. Yeah. What, what are you watching out for over the next it's couple of weeks? Pretty, it's pretty interesting. Rafael Nadal won yesterday quite comfortably, and in doing so, won his one hundred and sixth French Open match, which means he has won the most of any ATP player to play any Grand Slam, surpassing Roger Federer's 105 Wimbledon wins. So he, Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz, who we've uh, talked about beforehand, they all went through swimmingly. Uh, on the women's side, there's some really interesting uh, early on results in the first round. Barbara Krachikova, the defending champion, she was eliminated yesterday. Now, to give context there for Krachikova, who's on screen now, she hasn't played for three and a half months. She really wasn't likely to play this tournament at all and decided at the last minute to do so to defend her title. And she hasn't actually played on clay since winning the French Open final last summer against uh, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova. She, uh, having said that, still left the post-match press conference in tears yesterday because of what happened. But she wasn't likely to play, so she came to play anyway. She's the first defending champion to lose in the first round of the French Open since Elena Ostapenka in 2018. You also have yesterday Naomi Osaka losing to Amanda Anisimova. Uh, that's the second time this year that Osaka has lost to Anisimova in uh, Grand Slam. They played at the Australian Open and Osaka had two match points in the final set but lost the match. Uh, Osaka doesn't have a good record on the French Open. She's never got to the second week in clay. Uh, same with Wimbledon and in her post-match press conference she talked about that at Wimbledon that she may not actually play uh, this year's All England Club because uh, she has referred to it as an exhibition event. Um, Wimbledon are banning all Russian and Belarusian players from competing. The ATB and WTA have responded by removing all ranking points from Wimbledon. So technically it is an exhibition event because you can't win any ranking points. So Osaka has said, because you know she's not really great in grass, she might play just to get a bit of grass practice, but she might not play either. Whereas Iga Sviantek, world number one, who breezed to her first round yesterday, she was asked about the same thing. And she quite amusingly said, well, I've already amassed loads of ranking points, so it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to play anyway. And Sviantek will probably actually win Wimbledon as well as winning this French Open. So Osaka's out, no major surprise there, but still, you know, such a great player. Won four Grand Slams already in her career to be out so early on is a bit of a shock to the system. Um, Emma Raducanu, she got through in uh, three sets yesterday, uh, her first ever French Open match. She's, of course, the reigning US Open champion. She struggled badly with injuries since that win in Flushing Meadows last year, but she got through uh, her match against Qualify yesterday just about. Garbina Muguruza, the 2016 champion, she's out in the first round, um, as is Ange Jaber, who has had a fantastic season so far in clay. That was a real shock. She's probably the second best player in 2022 on current form. She, her clay season to date has been uh, really kind of spectacular. She won in Madrid and she got to the final in Charleston and Rome, but she came unstuck after winning the first set of her first round match. She ended up losing in three sets. So there's been loads of surprises on the women's front at the moment. The only uh, major shock I'd say on the men's front, men's front so far is Dominic Team, finalist in 2018 and 19. He's out, but Team, um, a bit like Krachikova, has really barely played in the last year. And actually, he was talking afterwards about possibly going to the Challenger Tour just to get some confidence with a few wins because his confidence is completely shot now, having you know consistently losing matches and never really being fit pretty much since he won the US Open in 2020. 
Okay, who's going to win that? Djokovic and Sviantek. Really? Yeah. Djokovic will beat I think Nadal is uh, Nadal pulled up in the Italian Open. He has this terrible ankle problem. He'd never problem yesterday in the first round against Jordan Thompson of Australia. But when he plays against a real player uh, of substance in a Grand Slam, that is, I think he'll come unstuck and he could play Djokovic as early as the quarter final. Okay. All right, Colin, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. It's uh, 7.58 this morning, OTBIM, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're um, going, uh, I'll tell you what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Should I do that? Will we do the coming up? Have I already done it? I haven't done it. There you go. Daniel Harris is going to join us right now and talk about the Eric Ten Hag press conference yesterday. Sarah Dunham is going to join us at 8.15 to tell us what she thinks of the core curlers now. Sports pages at 8.35. John Duggan coming up at uh, 8.50, talking about Saipan 20 years on. We'll also be joined by Dion Fanning and uh, David Connolly James Ryan is going to talk to us at uh, 20 past 9 and then some Philippe Auclair goodness from uh, last night talking about the end of the Premier League season and the Kylian Mbappe contract uh, but for now Daniel Harris good morning to you how are you? I'm good thanks hi everyone um, a cream suit do we read anything into uh, is anybody wearing a cream suit I mean white suits cup finals all that kind of stuff I was like ooh this is a brave <laughs> that choice is, it's an extremely ballsy move isn't it yeah. because I mean I always, when I see a cream suit, I think back to when I was doing A-level politics and um, our teacher was wearing cream, I guess they were chinos, comes in in cream chinos. And uh, he'd obviously visited the men's room prior to coming and he had been uncareful. And when you do that and you come into a room featuring various 17-year-old kids, some of them boys, you've got to expect that it's going to get pointed out. And it did. (laughs) And... um, that is what I saw Ten Hag and I thought, oh, mate, you are an extremely brave individual. Perhaps those that is a kind of quality that United needs, someone who says no to convention. Uh, and what did he say in the actual press conference that, uh, that gives you any <laughs> comfort? Or, like, does any of this stuff matter? Like, I, I, sometimes it does. It only matters if you screw it up, really. Isn't that the point? I, I mean, you'd have to try quite hard to screw it up. I mean, because what you've... Like he wasn't asked any particularly searching questions. I find that in press conferences, quite a lot of the time, and um, I know that I, I don't mean all people who are in press conferences when I say this, but you can tell quite a lot of the time. When I haven't sat in that many, but I've sat in enough to know that people ask questions because they want a particular answer. Then a lot of the time, they're not asking questions because they want to find out a particular or even an interesting piece of information. Their editor wants a particular headline about a particular subject. They ask as many questions as they possibly can trying around that one subject to get a particular answer. But Ten Hag also went in there with absolutely no intention of giving anything away. So I felt the same things that I thought about Ten Hag prior to that I feel afterwards now that it felt like he's tough and he's definitely tough enough to be United manager. I'm not certain whether he's compelling enough, but perhaps he doesn't have to be compelling. Perhaps the compelling aspect comes through players seeing that he knows what he's talking about, the football gets better and he becomes compelling in that way. Like he doesn't have Klopp's easy charm, but you don't have to have that necessarily. Tuchel doesn't have it either. He's just, Tuchel's a good talker when he gets going and Guardiola is something else again. But Guardiola is a very specific thing because he started with that first job where he had some of the greatest players of all time. He made them better. So he comes to every job with players knowing that well, look, he improved the greatest players ever, some of them. he's gonna, And the players know he's going to make them better and he's going to win. So Guardiola's charisma is not really, doesn't seem to me to be in his actual, rooted in his actual personality, is rooted in his achievements. And I guess 
Ten Hag, whilst probably being less of a weirdo and less of a hypocrite about human rights issues, is more like that than like Klopp. But anyone who speaks about Ten Hag says the players love him. Um, I think that he'll also know that he has a monstrous job to do. So that should enable him to pick quite a few of his own players rather than deal with the detritus that he's been left. Will the players respect that I guess, caution from Ten Hag in the press more given what's happened over the last few months? Like, for example, did they take Ranić's honesty badly in, in his public pronouncements? Are we back to talking about the trousers? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, 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 we don't know. Like, these players are experts in seeing off managers and hopefully there's going to be very few of them left. Uh, I'm not personally bothered remotely by their delicate sensitivities and sensibilities. I, 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 and I, I doubt Ten Hag is because they've absolutely disgraced themselves this season. Even against Palace with their new manager watching, they couldn't pull their fingers out and put in a serious amount of effort. Um, so I think quite a lot of them are going to be gone. And I definitely don't think that Ten Hag should or will be pandering to the fact that they might be feeling or might be a bit delicate because that's not going to work. Ole was quite delicate with them. It didn't work and they shafted him. And I don't think that Ten Hag will be delicate with them. I think that it will be tough. He knows that they're not fit enough and he knows that they're not good enough and they're going to have to either address that immediately in pre-season or they're going to have to find somewhere else to play. And that already applies to quite a few of them now. I mean, so many of them are leaving anyway. And I think we've already been told that Aaron Wan-Bissaka has been informed he can go. Uh, and I, I doubt very much he'll be the last. I mean, it's great telling Aaron Wan-Bissaka and maybe Phil Jones and a few others that they can go, but no one's going to pay them the same wages they're on. So maybe Manchester United have decided that they're willing to contribute 25, 35, 40, 50% of, of their salary to a new club, unless Newcastle decide that they're going to be silly and, and spend too much money. Um, so, uh, like, if... If that does happen, I would be impressed because I think the right thing to do is to raise everything to the ground and to start rebuilding with players who you know are your players. Whether or not they're good enough straight away, the trouble with that yeah. is that it takes a bit longer. Like it, I, I'm sure Ten Hag has been told that because just of the way he spoke yesterday. But he'll, he'll have seen what has happened to other managers at United where they've been promised stuff and it hasn't materialised. He saw what happened with Mourinho at the end where basically Woodward went in public and said, well, actually, we didn't agree with Mourinho's transfer targets. I mean, turned out Woodward was right. I mean, but doesn't matter. You if I'm, The second the board start doing something like that, the manager's toast. And I'm sure that Tenach um, has said to them that the players need to go, need to go, because ultimately a player who's sat on the bench doing nothing for you, take, taking wages off you, is an expense. So if you get rid of that player for some money and paying some wages, you're still quids in relative to where you would have been if you just had that player sitting around making the place look miserable. So the question now, I think, is probably not so much about whether the board are prepared to take a loss on players that the manager doesn't want. It's do they have the acumen to get the deals done, both ins and outs, and quite a lot of them spinning plates at the same time. And uh, there is no evidence to suggest that they do. However... Most of the people that have been cluttering up the place with their nonsense for the last 10 or so years have gone or are going. So there is hope that there is a little bit more expertise and footballing expertise than there was previously. Uh, Rannick was saying on Sunday that 
out of the starting 11 other than Edinson Cavani, the other 10 will be at the club next season. Does that give you hope? In, in, or does that just make you feel, oh God, what, what are we in for again next season? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, most of the players that started, I guess I would have expected to stay. As in, I mean, uh, so if you look at the team that play, De Gea will be the goalkeeper next season. Henderson will be gone either permanently or on loan. I imagine they'd probably want to sell him permanently because he's going to be an all right goalkeeper. He's going to be a Premier League goalkeeper, I imagine. He's probably not going to be good enough for United because he's not particularly good at anything. He's not great shot stopper. He's not great with his feet. He's better. He's not bad at organising the defence, but if you're taking defenders taking orders off a goalkeeper they don't particularly trust to stop stuff, it's also probably not that helpful. So I imagine Dean Henderson will go. De Gea will stay. Dallo played. Um, he's not good enough, but I guess Tenach isn't doesn't think he's signing two right backs, so he's picked one. Um, and Brandon Williams will probably go as well. So that makes some sense, even though I'm not a fan of Dallo. Maybe someone, maybe they'll buy a right back. Selling Harry Maguire at this point would be a problem. And Victor Lindelof also. So I guess the centre-backs will be Maguire, Lindelof, Varane, and they're going to sign one who will play with Varane. That will be the first choice. So again, I'd much rather, I'd happy to see the end of Maguire and Lindelof, but it's not realistic to think that they're selling Maguire, Lindelof, Jones and Bailly, and then that, and two and Zebi, and then they have to buy some centre-backs. It just seems unlikely. Um, Teles was there. I mean, he isn't any good, but... Luke Shaw's not reliably fit enough, and I guess left back will be a position they address next summer. Uh, who else played in that game? Um, McFred, Bruno, field. Fr- McFred, McFred, and Bruno. Again, Bruno will, I'm sure, be. Ma- Bruno has had a, a dreadful season, and obviously uh, created the goal for Palace. But with a proper manager and proper better players around him, and proper idea of what they're doing, I'm sure he'll be much better. McFred, again, like they're reliable. McFred, are, they're good first reserves, even though T in particular has had an astonishingly awful season and inexplicably so in some ways. But what's odd about McTominay is that he, was, he, he is a number eight, not a number six. But the extent to which he's unable to play number six is baffling in that he regularly takes up positions where the keeper and the defenders can't find him to get the ball out and he stands in the cover shadow. And I don't understand because he doesn't seem particularly thick or dense. And I don't understand why he's unable to do that. And the only other sensible answer is that he's hiding. But I'm certain that he wouldn't do that either. So I'm hoping that with some decent some decent instructions, McTominay will be better. But yeah, him and Fred are good reserves. I wouldn't expect either of them to be in the first choice 11 next season. But as rotation players, where you've got other good players around them, they're both okay. Um, Anthony Alanga, um, he he has some ability, but even the chance that he missed on Saturday and on Sunday, and I would never want to boil down someone and say, well, look, that goes to show because look, all players miss chances, all players miss easy chances. It wasn't that easy a chance, but to me, it really encapsulated the problem that I have with him in that everything feels rushed and snatched at, and I don't see the technical ability and composure of a United centre-forward. But who knows? I mean, again, maybe with a bit of coaching, he'll be better, but he's not at the level that even Danny Welbeck was at at that age, who had a much better, much more adhesive touch and I think better awareness too. So we'll see. But yeah, I wouldn't have expected United to sell him either. Cavani's going and that's more or less the team, isn't it? So yeah, I'm not surprised by any of those things. 
I'm not getting I'm not getting agitated by any of those things because much as we'd basically all like to keep Varane, Sancho, maybe Rashford and um, and Bruno and sell everyone else, it's not feasible. So yeah, I'm it, more or less the ones that have to go will go, and the ones that have to go just that little bit less will stay. Are you happy that Ronaldo seems to be staying at the moment? I think it depends how he's going to be used. United got to have a new centre forward and they need to find, but as much as that, they need to find a new way of playing. And the problem there is that they're not, the centre forward that they're going to buy, who's going to be a part of however Ten Hag decides he wants to play, is not going to play in the way that Ronaldo does. So that is slightly problematic, but because, it, but on the other hand, if Ronaldo plays half the number of games, he'll have the energy to do quite a lot more running. And that is something that Ten Hag will have to put his foot down about because Ronaldo was good at the beginning of the season and good at the end of the season, but totally lost his way in the middle when there are a lot of games coming. And Ten Hag is going to need to be strong in telling Ronaldo that he's not... One second, telling that I feel that there's someone peeping around the door, peeping around the wall. But Ronaldo is going to have to tell Ten Hag that he's not going to play in half the games. And also, he's going to need to be very defined about the role he wants from him. If he's going to play, say, in the way that he's been using Sebastian Allaire as a hold-up player, he's going to score fewer goals and he's going to need to alter his game slightly. If he's going to be a one-touch finishing kind of player, which was the player I thought that Ole would want him to be, then they're probably going to need another winger as well because I think that Jaden Sancho is capable of providing the kind of service that allows those one-touch near-post penalty spot finishes, the cutbacks, the way that we see City play quite a lot of the time. But there's no one really on the right-hand side that's going to provide that. So it, I don't have a problem with Ronaldo staying because ultimately in the back of my mind, there's also, if Ronaldo hadn't have been there this season, how unremittingly awful it would have been. I mean, not unremittingly awful, how even more unremittingly awful it would have been. But there's going to need to be some rules laid down about how often Ronaldo is going to play and what is going to be expected of him. Yeah. The, like I mean, the, it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of does kind of transpire early next season. I guess the the, the question would be regarding the, the level of patience that I guess Manchester United fans will afford Ten Hag. Like, did, did you sense that amongst the Manchester United fan base that patience wore thin with Ranić more so because of the fact that he was all, only there for a temporary amount of time and everybody knew that come the end of the season he, he wasn't going to be in the, the managerial role whereas it'll kind of reset come August that if it isn't uh, a great first half of the season it'll be like okay we're, this is a this is a long-term project uh, I think patience around him with Ragnick because it was so crap yeah and where it comes to a point where you're just getting absolutely nothing out of the players it's not possible for these players to produce a worse half season that under Ragnick than they have and so patience is running thin on that basis. I think it's with, with Ten Hag, he will have some patience in the beginning because he's inherited a mess. And but the thing is, is that it which should get better quite quickly, quite significantly because it's so bad already. And he's going to have hopefully minimum four, maybe six, seven different players. So he's going to have a very different team. And I think with all the managers post-Fergie, the thing that unites the way that the majority of match-going fans have responded to them is that it's fine until it becomes obvious that it's not getting better. So 
There'll always be people that didn't like the managers to begin with. I didn't like Moyes to begin with. I could not believe that United went for Moyes. I thought that it was it was ludicrous that Fergie did it, but it was even more ludicrous that Fergie was allowed to do it because the idea that David Moyes was had done anything to prove himself to be even a candidate, not the best candidate, was insane. And so I was one of those people who I guess I was supporting the team in the, in the ground, but I was waiting for Moyes to fail. So I never really had any patience with patience with Moyes. But people lost their patience with Moyes with the, I think probably the time, with, where, like they got a slapping from City very early on. But the time people really lost their patience with Moyes when they were kind of losing at home to Newcastle and Southampton and those million crosses against Fulham. Then Van Gaal, I mean, I, I was sort of quite happy with Van Gaal because I thought that he was going to be practical. He'd come off a World Cup where he'd done an amazing job with Holland, where they basically got to the semi-finals because of him and his tactical interventions. And he played really negatively with Holland. And I thought that was because he was being practical. That was the way that Holland had to play to succeed. So he turned up at United and I thought that he was going to play some good football because that was really what he'd done a lot, a lot of the way through his career. And he signed some good attackers. And they played this one match against Leicester really early on. United were 3-1 up and lost 5-3. And they played, I think they played a diamond in that game with Di Maria was in it. And then they had maybe Rooney behind Van Persie and Falcao. So loads of attackers. And in getting to 3-1, they played some absolutely brilliant football. They're the player, I think Raphael, he gets sent off, I think wrongly sent off. And they gave a penalty away as well. And they ended up losing 5-3. And after that, it was just negativity all the way. And that was the problem with Van Gaal, was the negativity. People start to lose their patience. And then there was a period over Christmas, he ended up getting fired at the end of the season. And at that point, it was obvious it was never getting better. It was never going to be good. And so at that point, when you're waiting for a manager to be sacked, he gets miserable. Same with Mourinho. He picks McTominay instead of Pogba in Sevilla. Lots of people had already lost their patience before then. United then get absolutely dominated at home by Sevilla in the return. And you know at that point, that it's not getting for it's not going to get good. It's got so bad. The manager it's got so bad because of the way that the manager manages that it's not possible to get good again. Same with Ole. A lot of people lost patience with Ole. Thought Ole was rubbish from the beginning. Fair enough. I see the argument. For me, I saw constant improvements until the beginning of the season that's just finished. And for me, the point at which it was like, okay, it's obvious this is not possible. It's not possible for this to get better anymore. Was when they got battered at Leicester, when just the same errors that kept getting made got made again that are a consequence of the particular style of Ole's management and at that point you know and I would say with Tenach because he's got such a lot of work to do the point at which hope is lost seems like it's quite away in the distance yeah. but also the point from where it is now gives him so much scope to improve that's it that I think that because of the scope to improve, we're going to see it get better because it can only get better. He's going to sign some good players this summer. I'm not worried that he's going to do what Moyes did or what was done to Moyes, I guess both of those things, and go and sign Marouane Fellaini on deadline day and that be it. Yeah. He's going to sign For some players. And yes. And he's going to sign players okay. that, he, that he knows how to get the best from yeah. because he has a way that he wants to play. He's not dealing with the mess of everyone else in as much as all the other managers were because Everybody's he's clearing the decks. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Okay, last question for me on this. Um, I was wondering why the Man United fans were happier that Manchester City were winning the league than Liverpool because ultimately I think that what's happening at Liverpool is largely down to Jurgen Klopp and when the Klopp cycle finishes as it will, as all great managers' cycles finish, then 
Uh, Liverpool will come back to the pack. Manchester City are based on an endless supply of money where literally the money grows and grows and grows and grows day on day. And so therefore, they are now going to be established as the power brokers of English football forever. So anything that slows them down, anything that halts their progress, anything that makes Pep less interested in staying, that like somehow maybe they could get a bad manager in there. Maybe. But even then, it'll be six months and they'll just get the next best manager in the world who they pay all the money to. So if I was a Man United fan, I would personally have preferred Liverpool to win than Manchester City to win, notwithstanding the traditional rivalry and the power and the titles. Am I wrong about that? Uh, Well, I can only say what I think and I can explain the various, the various issues and we can, we can, we can try. So first of all, I think that in general, people that haven't grown up in the playgrounds of Manchester and working in Manchester and living in Manchester are going to have less antipathy for City than people that did. So because they don't, they don't, they're not hanging around City fans all the time so I think partly if you see people some so for me I, I didn't grow up in Manchester I mean I grew up to dislike Man City because my dad raised me to dislike Manchester City and to dislike Leeds but what I saw was Liverpool winning everything in sight so for me it was it was always it was always Liverpool City for most of my life and I'm 43 now have never been a threat They've been the team that you want to beat because they're a local rival and you have all the reasons that you have to dislike them. But competitively, there's never been um, that much rivalry in my lifetime. I mean, there was in my dad's lifetime. My dad hates City because when my dad went to school, um, there was a lot of City. It, it, was, it, wasn't quite, it wasn't half and half. It was still more United, but there was a lot of City fans. There were a lot, it was mates with City fans. And also in those days, a lot of the Jews in Manchester supported City. So, so my dad was friends with a lot of City fans for that reason too. City was sort of, well, it's obviously much more complicated and much more nuanced than this, but United were the Catholic club and City, City were a Jewish club. Uh, but my dad's family were United, so my dad was United, but he had that. Growing up in the playgrounds of Manchester, you're going to have antipathy for City, but if you didn't, then it's going to be less so. So that would be one thing. Another thing would be that for United fans, for anyone really, well, City, you can just, it's much easier to dismiss City's success as plastic and based on human rights abuses. Whereas Liverpool's is, I mean, obviously you've still got American venture capitalists involved, but it is also much more based on charisma, the charisma of Jurgen Klopp, the magnetism of Jurgen Klopp um, and the, the, the job that the backroom staff have done. In the history of football, there has probably never been a better run of transfers, of successful transfers, than what we've seen from Liverpool over the last three or four years. I mean, it's it's amazing, really. And I don't say that with any pleasure, obviously, but we have to be honest, and it remains it remains true. Okay. And so that would be another thing. Then you've also just got numbers. You've got the fact that, so for me, I wanted City to, I mean, wanted is obviously a very strong word, but I wanted City to win the league and I wanted Liverpool to win the European Cup because I'd much rather Liverpool got to seven than City got to one. I know what Liverpool winning the European Cup is like. It happened the first time it happened in my life, I remember. I stayed up to watch the game. I was five. Um, I know what Liverpool winning the European Cup is like. It's something that happens. City winning the European Cup was something I'd, I'd spend the first, what, 35, nearly 40, year, 40 years of my life thinking I would never even have to think about. Yeah. Okay. And so I don't I don't want that to happen. Similarly, United have won more leagues than Liverpool. I want that to stay the case. So, yeah, I guess those are the various... It's a, com- a complex cocktail of, of uh, little Bitterness and, up. Yeah, exactly. and pettiness and all the things that make football beautiful. Exactly. All right. Daniel, good stuff. Thanks a million for explaining that. Cheers.
Say good night, have a good day, everyone. Said uh, Daniel Harris. He's on your side there with that. I suppose it makes sense. The numbers thing is the main. You bump into more Liverpool fans if you're a Man United fan than you do City fans. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good point. I mean, not, not every Manchester United fan is uh, is, is well versed on the intricacies of what it's like to, to live in Manchester. So that probably takes away the, the hatred for City quite a bit. Right. Uh, I can legitimately say this is the, one of the best competitions we've ever had in the 20 years we've been doing shows here. Uh, calling all cycling enthusiasts and indeed sports fans, Skoda are the official main partner of the Tour de France and to celebrate on OTB Sports we have a once-in-a-lifetime giveaway. This prize is a VIP trip to stage 13 of the Tour de France from the 14th to the 16th of July including flights and accommodation for one winner plus a partner. All you need to do for a chance to win is to be available to travel from the 14th to the 16th of July and you also have to enter. Just let us know who this Carrick and Shore cyclist is who famously won the final stage of the Tour de France in the year 2020. And then, yeah, just uh, I just couldn't believe it happened. And then, yeah, the, the, the picture where I'm looking at the big screen, it was like, <laughs> did this just happen? Let us know who that is by tweeting at Off The Ball with your answer. Each daily winner will win a €100 Euro one for all voucher and a Skoda cycling jersey. And uh, you will go into the draw for the grand prize Best of luck. Skoda drivers, for another chance to win, check out skodaservice.ie. Sarah Dunneman's going to join us in a moment, just after this. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. A couple of steps forward and a couple of steps backwards, really. Monster legends Alan Quillen and Neil Briggs are joining forces to bring you all the latest analysis, news, interviews and so much more. I think for Monster, for them in order to get a performance and a result, they need to concentrate on how well they've played over the last eight weeks since that kind of post-Six Nations window. The Red 78 with Alan Quillen and Neil Briggs. Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. This is Sport Ireland Campus. And here is where it all starts. From the little ones learning to the high-performance athletes leading. Here we go to play, to practice, to progress. Here is where communities in the nation come together to compete, to win and to belong. Here we go to the next level, then on to the world stage. This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here we go. Visit sportirelandcampus.ie to be a part of it. Paddy, like go, what? He goes, Paddy Andrews. I go, yeah. And he goes, this is James Hills. He's upstairs. Will I get him? <laughs> the Football Pod with Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue are bringing the show on the road. The first stop for Ireland's biggest and best GEA pod will be the Royal Theatre in Castle Bar on Thursday, June 2nd, as Paddy, James, Tommy and special guests dissect, analyse and celebrate Mayo football, as well as getting stuck into the runners and riders for Championship 2022. Tickets are €20 Euro plus booking fees and are on sale now. See OTB Sports forward slash events for more OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs razor with exfoliating bar 25 minutes past 8 this morning I think I'm beginning to see a pattern we've stacked the show full of cork people today did you notice that on, on the anniversary of Saipan Sarah Donovan good morning to you how are you I'm delighted that you're talking about Roy again you can never talk about Roy enough so you're obviously team Roy since the age of eight. Massive United fan. And uh, what's your recollection of the whole shit show? I remember Roy being right then. Didn't like Mick after that. And I'm going to stand by it now. Sure, look. I'm in. <laughs> you, can't, you can't not trust the feelings you had as a child. Like, <laughs> Look, I just remember his, his outrage and, and his upset. And, and that stayed with me then. And I said, well, he was right. They didn't have footballs. What were they supposed to do? And was, there, was this... Um, a formative moment in your own 
like sports following career? Well, never trust a manager. Like, well, you know, I'm essentially, it's always player led. I've decided that now. Has been to my detriment at times, you know, where you probably should trust the manager. I know Taggy was on yesterday talking about uh, managers ruling with an iron fist, and I was saying, Oh, Jesus, I wouldn't be good in that dressing room. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed to work okay for that group of Kilkenny players, uh, which brings us nicely to Kieran Kingston and the, the Cork management setup, who are now the best management setup in the country, apparently, over the last couple of weeks. What's changed before we get into. Um, what should happen and what's likely to happen. I think we were talking about them being more direct and I think the players are trusting each other more as well. I'm of the opinion that this is player-led. I was going to say that obviously based on everything I've just said before but I just feel like the players are actually trusting each other more and they're demanding more of each other. So even the last day late on in the game Right, Cork are winning it by a cricket score and Seamus Harnady goes to give a ball to Dara Fitz. Dara Fitz doesn't move into the right pocket. Seamus Harnady had an option. He was going to score. He obviously chose to go with Dara the ball gets turned over and Seamus' reaction to Dara, he was really pissed off at him. Like He just really wanted him to be in the right position. And I suppose I hadn't seen that before from the Cork setup where they were demanding more of each other and they're 12 points up. They're, they're cranky. But in a good really way. cranky, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a great way to play because you get so much more out of your team. Are you... Um taking some of the credit for the crankiness given that you were like one of the leading voices going this shower they're not trying a leg what's going on work great work great work great you know Connor Han is the epitome of work great and he scores six points again the last day in the first half as I said last week he's like Lazarus you know every game he's getting better and better and I wonder is that because it was being taken away from him you know and look you look at Tim O'Mahony goal merchant scores a class goal again the last day he just loves to run forward he's so direct like they've changed three or four things and they've been huge huge in the last three weeks Are you giving the management team no credit for that? Look they've obviously been listening to the pundits the management aren't you know naive they're being offered opportunities to change and they have the players who are there to change and the players are versatile they're flexible but the players are also incredibly skillful so the management can adapt and they have I'm I'm always in two minds about this where like um, the performances that we've seen from Seamus Harnady this year are better than we've ever seen I would say like it certainly feels like at is he 29? He's fulfilling all of the potential that we thought was there. Conor Lehan has come back. Like, it was weird seeing the scoring. It was Lehan and Harnady. I was like, hang on a second. What, is, what year is this? 2013? Because that's it, what, what it feels like. Yeah. You know, um, and... Uh, I, I, I don't know. It feels like Kingston is actually a player's manager in that he he's not... He doesn't have an iron... Certainly from the outside. It doesn't feel like yeah. he is running with an iron fist. He's not Brian Cody. No. And... Um, Whatever changes have been made, maybe they were made in consultation with the players or not, but there's there's a humility from a manager to allow that to happen. Um, and I agree with you on that. I think the players aren't, they don't play with fear because some of the things they were trying to do in the second half the last day, if they were playing with fear, they wouldn't be trying those things. You know, they were still overplaying the ball. Um, and, I, and I don't think they feel like they're going to be punished for that. So there is a nice, I suppose serendipity between the players and the management and, and, and it does feel like they do listen to each other so that is that is a positive in, in this year's campaign and the other thing about the, the round robin sorry the other thing about the round robin is that like um, you know previously before the round robin when the back door was there we have seen teams get absolutely annihilated in Munster and then go on through the back door and have a great run you think of uh, Isaki's hat-trick was like, oh this is amazing but then like that wasn't it didn't actually lead to anything uh, although um, like Tip have a couple of times been absolutely annihilated is that now in this Cork team psyche that like not being in the Munster final is frequently the best way for you to go if you can 
keep that sense of confidence building. You, you know, you train, there's a nice handy match for you in the middle of it and you arrive absolutely ready in a quarterfinal against a team who's just coming off a beating. I wonder in any other year would that be relevant, but with Limerick looming for everybody, it just feels like you can go so far. So this Cork team getting as much out of themselves as they can, but ultimately, if you want to win the All-Ireland, you have to face Limerick. And for everyone, that's the case. Yeah. Uh, would you rather face them in a final or would you rather face them in a situation where they've been beaten by Clare in the Munster final? I cannot tell you the level of depression. Actually, I can because you had me on the following morning last year. <laughs> I barely got out of bed. An All-Ireland final is not the place to meet Limerick for this Cork team. I think they have to do it in a slightly less imposing, less pressure environment and I would rather do it in a semi-final, I think. And time not to get, yeah, the semi-final rather than uh, losing against Clare. The, the time off that Limerick would have before an All-Ireland semi-final would be probably where they'd be at their most vulnerable. Think so? I think, I think so, because like, if they lose to Clare... Like, They've I, just I, been pretty good at it over the last number of years. Yeah. I get, well, the only thing is that they did get caught in a semi-final one year they did get caught. I mean, it should have gone to extra time. It should have been, there should have been a free, they should have equalised, they should have gone to extra time. They probably would have yeah. been, yeah. I just think that I would rather, based on the experience of Cork last year, to do it earlier in the campaign, to, to meet yeah. Limerick earlier in the campaign. I just don't think this Cork team is built for another All-Ireland final like that and the pressure that was put on them last year. Okay, so uh, you are still obviously uh, damaged by last year's All-Ireland final and we have to assume that the Cork psyche is at the moment. But is there not... The, is there something happening over the last couple of weeks that makes you think, OK, hang on a second? We're still missing a wing back. There was just a couple of moments the last day where, despite Cork's you know, dominance, there was, a co- there was space. Tipperary opened a co- up a couple, of, uh, a couple of times and I just went, oh, it's like, why isn't he going there? Why, isn't he, why doesn't he see the danger? They weren't reading the danger the last day and against better teams, against Galway, against Limerick, I think Cork will be opened up much faster. We went 1-3 to no score down. I actually thought that Patrick Collins had saved the penalty from my vantage point in the stand. I think a lot of people did. Yeah, but, yeah. and like, that would have put them seven clear. So it was, it's just that sense of naivety. They're like, oh, we'll, we love to hurl, but we don't necessarily You'd love to have seen what danger. would have happened if the penalty had gone in, right? 100%. I mean, we would say we would have certainly as, uh, as neutrals, just to see if they could have come back from that because the performance subsequently was really spectacular and it comes off the back of a really good performance as well. So, uh, you know, um, the the the... Where's the confidence? Where where are this team? If you were to power rank, you obviously have you clearly have Limerick first. Uh, you mentioned Galway there. Uh, would Clare also be at Galway's level at the moment? Or I I think so. I, I think Limerick, Clare, Galway, and then you're looking at Cork. I think Kilkenny to lose at home to Wexford. You know that was Suddenly the first time Wexford had this, ever yeah. won in Nolan Park. They've lost twice. They're still in Leinster final. Their scoring threat isn't the same. I think they only scored three points from play the last day. Just not motoring the same way as Galway. And then Galway had to bring on Johnny Cohn, Evan Nyland, Jason Flynn. Much more in terms of an attacking presence than Kilkenny have. Can can I just ask, just on uh, Cork and fear, uh, you said that they're playing without fear at the moment. Could you not make a case that playing through the lines at the start is actually emblematic of not playing with fear because they're not afraid of getting turned over in their own half. They're not afraid of, of making an error. And in actual fact, it is that fear of uh, screwing up in their own half that has actually driven them to play a more direct style of hurling over the last few weeks. That's a very tough question, actually. Um, I, I genuinely felt like they understood each other better as a group the last two games. And they were trusting in Alan Connolly. 
you know, the the players themselves were going, oh, hang on a second, this guy can motor, so let's give him the ball. Like, let's give Hoggy the ball. Let's give um, Dara Fitz the ball. Uh, Robbie Flynn. Like, th- they're looking for each other. They're looking to play. And, and the player in the best position was getting the ball rather than keeping to a strict, let's play through the lines. So I would say moving away from that idea of having to play through the lines shows them playing without fear. Uh, so what's the ceiling? The ceiling is being beaten by Limerick whenever they come up against them at the moment. But yeah. giving them a much better game than last year. They're still missing a wing back. Like I there's just a couple of areas that they don't have ready yet. Um I they really need a, a, a another wing back. Mark Coleman's fine, Joyce is fine. That third that third wing back position is is key and that's and so that's that's gonna stop them. That's but, gonna stop them. But that's progress from last year? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they should be further down the track with this management team and that's why I'm a little disappointed. Clare's catapult into that same tier I think is down to the personnel that's available to them. But uh, if, if Clare and Cork met three weeks in a row over the next three weeks I'd say it's 50-50 at this stage given the form that the Cork are in at the moment. It was a two-point Th- game when they played a few weeks ago. Like it wasn't a, a And hammer. I do think something's turned around in, in two Cork Two late goals well. for Cork though, let's, well, like, yeah, uh, let's be honest. But if you look at what Clare did the last day against Limerick, they, you know, Six players brought in. Brian Lowen said, "Lads, there's their game or this place is here up for grabs. Let's go for it." And those six players came in and went hell for leather. Cork wouldn't have that depth to have to be able to change six different players and then expect them to go toe to toe. No, and it's interesting that Lehan has come back in and is performing at the level he's at. So look, I, it's going to be interesting. There are some big games ahead. Where do you think is going to be the end of the, the road for this Cork team at the moment? If they make Galway. Okay. I think I think Galway will be too physical and also have the firepower up front. And after the weekend, so it sounds like you think Galway are going to win Leinster? I do, based on what I saw the last uh, weekend between Wexford and Kilkenny. I just think they look a little tired. It's going to be interesting to see the handshake and, um, <laughs> and the, the level of obsession that Cody has over the next couple of weeks for winning that game. And then uh, who's going to win Munster? Limerick. Will it be close? I think it'll be at six points. I, I, I think Limerick are very... They're, they've had a, a lot of time over the last four weeks to look at how Clare play and Clare have showed them a lot about, about the way they play. All right. Sarah, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us today. It's uh, 8.42, 8.41. We're talking rugby with Matt Williams on tomorrow's programme. Jordan Larmer's form at the weekend has catapulted him back into many conversations around team selection, potentially even from an Ireland perspective. The full chat here between Fiona Hayes and Jerry Thorney is available on our YouTube channel and on the OTV Rugby podcast stream. Have a quick look at this. Has Jordan Larmer forced his way into the European Cup Final 23, Jerry? It's a good question. If anybody has last Saturday night, it was him, wasn't it? It was a timely reminder, lest we forget, of what a, an extraordinary one-off player he is. There's really no other player quite like him in Irish rugby. Probably the, the nearest thing to him in the last 10 or 12 years was probably Luke Fitzgerald. That kind of acceleration and quick feet and Larmer's even more kind of um, mesmerising, slaloming kind of... I mean, he was making everybody else look like they were jogging on the spot at times. It was his own teammates, never mind the opposition. He got, it got to be a little faintly ridiculous. There's a point in the second half when he got the ball and he kicked it, and you can always hear the audible groan from the crowd. Jo- Jordan, you weren't born to kick the ball, lad. You were born to run with it. So, yeah, he provides an X factor if you were chasing a game with 15, 20 minutes to go. Um, he's your classic number 23 as well, isn't he? He can play fullback, he can play either wing, he can play 13. He's done so for Ireland, didn't he? I think he moved, didn't he play a, a Twickenham Grand Slam match, some of that match at 13? Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. you know, he's the ideal fit for 23. 
He didn't play for 10 weeks. He looks like he's as fresh as fresh from as, as he possibly could be. There aren't that many players in Irish rugby. There's really nobody quite like with that kind of X factor, that ability to just beat players in a phone box and to accelerate. And it, it's a real food for thought for them. I wouldn't be surprised if he does make 23. And the other one, of course, is Ryan Baird, given he can play both mm-hmm. second row and back row, as he showed. Yeah. You know, I thought he had a very good, lively, rangy, typically yeah. athletic Ryan Baird type of game. Right, that's uh, the Jordan Larmer debate. You can hear the full thing on the OTB Rugby podcast stream. Subscribe to OTB Rugby. Search that on whatever podcast app you use. The best one is the OTB Sports app, by the way. At 8.43, John Duggan. Good morning to you. Jaron Owen, how are we doing? Happy 20th Saipan anniversary. I was uh, doing a lot of reading and watching the last few days, Jaron. I saw yourself standing up at the press conference was there is there footage in, 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 I don't know it's just a photo of you in the, I think it was a red jumper there is there it is oh. of course on screen the, the red zippy the earring um, a good time uh, by the way Brendan O'Brien of the Irish Examiner <laughs> is standing over your shoulder who hasn't aged one bit <laughs> no in 20 years incredible um, no uh, what do you, like what, what does this image say to you what does it say to who to you Jim. scoop Scoop. Scoop. Look, it's it's like the wireframe notebook. Like, no more wanky kind of self-indulgent journalist. Look at us all with our little notebooks. Like, I handed out. Like, look at me. I'm a proper journalist. Proper journalist. Look at this. How many piercings do you have? Did you have? Hey, none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> Visible or invisible? Um, Some questions you just don't want to ask. And um, there is video footage. I had an eyebrow piercing, which was gone by that stage. That's a shame. I wish we wish we saw that. And what age are you there? 24. 24, okay. No, just just turned 25. There, there is video footage. It's just very, very shaky. There's like a, a kind of a, an online video on, on YouTube. Where, is there? Where it's, it's like it just kind of glances past you. Oh, it's They're from... jotting into your uh, shorthand. Um, yeah. Start... yeah, well, that, look, that, that press conference is really the public birth of John Delaney as an important character in Irish football because for whatever reason, he decided he's going to be front and centre and he's going to face the music at that point, he'd kind of been floating around the background, but had never really been in the public's consciousness. No, well, he, he was there at the light of the long knives when his dad, Joe, left the FBI in, in Marengate in 96. And he got onto the board in about 2001 as treasurer. Um, but I was listening back the other day. Um, this press conference was quite quickly arranged. It was on the day that Roy was sent home, this press conference, because the news broke about 11 a.m., between 11 and 12 Irish time. The news broke on the Thursday, the 23rd of May, which was yesterday, 20 years ago. And by the evening bulletin, which I was on today, FM, Delaney had already done his press conference, backing Mick and the FAI support the decision for Mick to send Roy home. Um, what's your recollection of the, the, like, how the story was being covered and, and breaking? It was confusion was the big thing. Uh, so the Tuesday, uh, Cahill Durvin had a website. I can't even remember the name of it. Uh, but he had a website and on the Tuesday uh, he broke the story on the website that Roy had the row with the goalkeepers uh, Alan Kelly and, and uh, Packy Bonner and then the last word on Today FM started getting text messages that Roy w- was going home and this was obviously rumour and there was no kind of RTE or any other sense that he was going home and uh, you know obviously Eamon Dunphy was writing the book on Roy Keane at the time so there's a huge amount of confusion then on the Wednesday it emerged that Roy had decided to go home but then had changed his mind and the Wednesday was the day he sat down to do the interviews with Tony O'Donoghue with the Irish Times and with the Sun Independent uh, 
and that's then when it all um, blew up. So on the Tuesday, he decided to go home. He'd had enough of Mick, it seemed. I'd had enough of the arrangements. Um, Ferguson and his family persuaded him to change his mind. It was all going to be sorted. Then he did the interviews. And then uh, on the Thursday, uh, Mick, you know, was downloaded the interviews and then, uh, you know, called the meeting. So on the Thursday, uh, I came into work at midday and the receptionist told me Roy Keane's been sent home. And I just said, I thought to myself, oh, my God. And the first thing I did, I think I rang Frank Stapleton, I rang Mick McCar- uh, Mark Lawrence and rang Kevin Sheedy and just got them all to just give their reaction because it was literally it was breaking. Um, but the confusion was the big thing that I remember from the whole week because it's an eight hour time difference. Technology was nowhere near where it is now. And then for the next few days, it was um, will he, won't he? You know, can we make a way to find a way of, of, of resolving this? But once again, the Mick McCarthy press conference of the players was like about half an hour after the row happened or something like that. So that was very hastily arranged. I remember I rang Michael Kennedy at one stage and I got through to him. I was so stunned that I got through to him. I, I was like, I was almost speechless. What did he say? Uh, I just asked him, well, can, you know, you know, some kind of... He was saying nothing. He was saying nothing. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, I actually got, got through to him. Is was, 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 was amazing, really. So you were making the same calls at the time, Ger? Yeah, yeah. We, I think that uh, you would have different pundits from us. Um, and... Like we were only a local station, you guys were national at that point. Uh, sworn competitors and and, and uh, rivals, as in you didn't even know where we existed basically because we we'd started a month previously. Like we started in April, and this is what May twenty fourth. So I'd say we were six weeks in operation, and literally the biggest story in the history of Irish sport is. Well, that, that gives you then this brilliant way of starting your off the ball career. Well, that's the thing. So what's what's the what's the um, the infrastructure of of off the ball at that time you're, you're a month in and so John's coming into the office at 12 o'clock is the show 7 to 9 on Newstalk at that point are you, are you coming in around midday and, and that time difference thing is kind of hitting you in the face when you come into the office those mornings that week um, I'd say I was in a bit earlier like a kind of 10am start like I lived 6 minutes from the office and it was my first month so like you know we were we were working all the time um, but the the, the Tuesday, sorry, the days of the week is I, I'm not clear in my head at all. But the Tuesday is the row with the goalkeepers. Yeah, Tuesday's the row. Wednesday's the interviews. Thursday is uh, the team meeting. So, uh, like uh, I remember Friday, they left on Friday then to go to Japan to the proper training base. I remember coming in to work on the Tuesday and I was like, "Oh, Roy Keane's leaving." Like that, that had definitely. And I was like, "No, it's that's, that's definitely not happening. This is nonsense." And it kind of just having this little sense of shock, going, "This isn't great. This isn't a great start to the whole." scenario where we're supposed to be going to have like the time of our lives this World Cup it's going to be unbelievable like you can early out there did you at the time he wasn't in Saipan he was he was going to um, going to Japan so um, you know so we, we didn't have any reporters in the ground yeah we were the same we, like Michael McMullen was on the way to Japan um, I'll never forget the, the, the feeling it was as comparable to 9-11 in terms of the newsworthiness of the story now that was a tragedy this was a farce but it was that it was it, the whole nation was convulsed and I'll just say to anybody in any kind of job the most important thing in any job is to do you can have as many go to them, as many courses as you want and theory and all these kind of courses about journalism broadcasting You when you're actually in it 
you realize that doing in something is, is so much more important. Practice is so much more important than theory. Like I, I remember I was on the receiving end of invective in the office. It was an extremely tense time. Um, it was just you're immediately into crisis mode. And I'm a junior, like, uh, observing this, but you see the whole newsroom, everybody's in crisis mode. Were you, were you head of sport? That's it. No, no, it was, it was Tim Toomey. Um, so I was just a junior in the office, seven and a half months into the job, and you're kind of going to yourself, oh, my God, i gotta, I got to get, i got to wake up here because um, this is the big leagues. Mm. And, you know, were you, you gotta, doing, were you a reporter? Were I, you doing I, I was doing bulletins. And because I was the only, we were actually, I was the only person doing the bulletins. Um, I, I remember I did 22 bulletins the day of the Cameroon game. <laughs> Uh, so like I was the only person on the desk every day just doing the bulletins and bulletins back then were um, like two and a half three minutes yeah but they're also more important in ways than they are now like they're still important but uh, they were really more very much a primary source of information for because people, people didn't have the the, the smartphone technology yeah. now you know so um, it, it was you know you're, you're relying on a lot of um, just guidance from your, your your mentor Tim Toomey who was there at the time and, and, and then Michael got over to do the reports from, from Japan and then he was he took over the story as it were but uh, yeah it, it was really it, it, it changed so many things it changed so many things by the time Brian Kerr was in there like nine months later like you know the likes of Mick Byrne Tony Hickey none, none of these people were around with the team anymore then Roy came back but uh, like I, I just wish somebody I just wish somebody um, like whether it was a Bertie Hearn figure or whoever had just just went and just said publicly, guys, you got to sort this out. you got a duty to the country. Ireland is more important than your egos. You're both at fault. Sort it out and we'll worry about it after the World Cup. You mentioned you were in the big leagues. We can hear John Duggan in the big leagues that week on uh, Today FM. Have a listen. Time now for the Bulmer Sports Headlines with John Duggan. The FAI are supporting Mick McCarthy's decision to send Roy Keane home from Japan. Steve Staunton has now been appointed captain of the side. And in golf, Colin Montgomery leads the Volvo PGA Championship at Wentworth by three shots. More sport in full just after six. Sounded like a 10-year-old, but I did get the golf in. <laughs> I did. got the golf in, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did sound very young, yeah. The most important part of this. Uh, today, FM, obviously, with uh, wall-to-wall coverage, as you mentioned, 22 bulletins a day over this week. And the last word was appointment listening. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, Eamon Dunphy here on Today, FM at the time. Have a listen. The captain of the Irish soccer team and the greatest player we've ever had has been sent home from the most important occasion that Irish soccer has ever had to face. It's a monumental blunder on McCarthy's part. Uh, and... Uh, you know, this is not a case of someone in being caught with a lap dancer or with anything of that nonsense. Uh, this is a man who has spoken and has earned the right to speak and has got us to the World Cup single-handed. It's an absolute farce. Now, Mick McCarthy obviously uh, felt undermined. Did he feel personally threatened by Roy Keane, do you think? I think so, and I think that's probably been a recurring feature of... Uh, McCarthy's stewardship on and Keane's relationship with him because you know you have to think that Roy Keane's captain of Manchester United Alex Ferguson Sir Alex Ferguson uh, who is you know the most renowned manager of our time gives Keane the respect and the freedom to speak his mind and we all know that he does that and there's no problem there but uh, McCarthy is an insecure uh, much a figure of much less stature and uh, he owes a lot to Roy Keane and if this is the way he's chosen to repay him uh, in order to uh, establish his own bona fides as a manager, well, then he's a fool because managers are supposed to manage problems, not create them. Now, we all know there's no problem there and there'll never be a problem between Sir Alex Ferguson and uh, Roy Keane because they love each other. <laughs> like, uh, the love that they have for each other knows no ends. Uh, yeah. Ian and uh, there'll never be a problem there uh, Roy will always be able to say whatever he wants with Alex Ferguson and they will be they will die friends that's the uh, you know 
It was uh, Ian Nocter, of course, in conversation with Emma Dunphy there. Dunphy using the same lines repetitively that week is one of my favourite parts. Like uh, Eileen Dunn had him on the lunchtime news probably that day, and it's like you didn't get caught with a lap dancer. That was uh, you're going to be consistent. If you have have a good line, use it consistently. You know, I'd say he was everywhere because he was on us a good bit around that time as well. Um, Dara Whelan, our producer, knew him somehow and had been able to get him on. And the other thing is, like, he's phoning into his own show there. Like, because he, he, he was an RTE the whole time doing the TV coverage, I'd say the Today FM bosses were delighted that Dunphy was a central character, but would have been even happier if well, he was well, presenting his own show. Well, he was gone a couple of months later uh, out of Today FM. But the, the last word, well, like it was utter um, appointment listening. You had, you had himself, you had John Giles taking a different view, Liam Brady and Mark Lawrence. And, but they pretty much took over the show the whole, every single evening. Well, that's for when the, the Giles fall, falling out happens and he joins yeah. the news talk. Uh, and... Also, the National Lunchtime News was a 12.45 show until 1. Every single day, the whole 15 minutes was Roy Keane mm. and Mick McCarthy. And then at the end of it, you'd have a two-minute sports bulletin and it'd be like me, like leading or whoever would be leading with, okay, well, I've spoken to oh, some other ex-Irish international who's got a view of it now Yeah. Uh, as we try to find out what was going on. We've got Dion Fanning on the line as well. Dion, good morning to you. How are you keeping? Good, Owen. How are you? Yeah, very well. Is 20 years on for you something that kind of gives you this sort of sense of, oh God, we're doing this again? Or has this week <laughs> been a sort of uh, momentous occasion for you where you're like, okay, time to get all the laundry out there. It'll be good for me. Well, I'm kind of struck by how everyone is kind of introducing it almost apologetically. Like, oh God. Uh, but it, to me, it's still, there, there is, you know, the, the details of it are kind of fascinating, are kind of interesting. And listening to that stuff is interesting. Like the idea that we we would relitigate it is pretty kind of boring for me. Like, I don't think it's uh, it's a question of kind of going over what what happened and trying to establish, uh, you know, the, 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 the rights and wrongs anymore. Um, but I do think there is a kind of there is. As far as I'm concerned, there's still that bit that people like when when and I wrote about this in the currency at the weekend that Keane as a as a changed person, that was the thing that still is kind of underplayed. Like this idea that this was Roy Keane, uh, who two three years previously was getting into all kinds of scrapes, if you like. You know, there was things happening in, you know, you look back to when Manchester United won the league in 1999 and. Two days later, Alex Ferguson is is getting Keane out of a police cell in Manchester. These were the these were the events that Keane has written about to a certain degree that were happening in his life, and which, when Saipan came along, weren't happening. And you know, Niall Quinn wrote it in his autobiography about the barbecue in Saipan, talked about how Roy Roy hasn't been drinking at this stage, so we make a show of going to bed. Everyone like in Quinn now, whether it's. Uh, um, embellished or not, Quinn talks about players pretending to be tired and yawning before tiptoeing out <laughs> for for their for their all nighter in the beef eater, and Keane being apart from that. Now Keane has always spoken about how he had no problem with that, and I would believe him because one of the things that has in, has kind of been part of his his post Saipan life and his post managerial life has been this sort of romanticizing of the old school football ways, but at the same time. Here he was trying to kind of be somebody different to who he would have been five or six years previously when he would have been in the beef eater. He would have been with them and he wasn't. And the tension and the pressure that that put on, put brought on him. I think we've never really fully 
grasp Saipan in terms of that. It didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter if they'd gone to, you know, somebody tweet showed like there was a letter from the J- Japanese ambassador, uh, the Irish Japanese uh, ambassador to Japan at the weekend saying, why did Ireland go to Saipan? This would probably have happened wherever there was. If it wasn't balls, if it wasn't pitches, if it wasn't if it wasn't what the details were on this instance, it would have been something else. And that's the thing I don't think fully is still grasped 20 years later. So when we start talking about who, you know, if we start talking about who was right or who was wrong, uh, it's it's not um, it's not really the debate mm. that, that that Keen almost put himself into this sense of isolation on a, on a mental sense and even kind of in the, the physical makeup of, say, the, the team hotel at that point and, and when he kind of speaks about players not coming to his door to wish him well before he flies home, that kind of speaks to a greater sense of isolation and separateness from the team that perhaps we haven't quite got to the bottom of? No, but it's still... It's, it's still no, we ha- well, we got... I don't know if we... Like, Keane always talks about this in terms of... And I remember asking him about this when he launched his second book about about giving up drinking and talking about it as a lifestyle choice. And that's what he is always, how he's always spoken about it. And that's, we, that's how we have to take it because that's how he's spoken about it. Uh, I would look at people in similar situations and think, God, that's it, like, it seems to be more, it seems to do a more fundamental adjustment to you than just deciding I'm going to eat more like steamed vegetables or I'm going to do more, you know, I'm going to do more yoga, all these things which Keane did as well. But I think he, he talked about the foreign players and their influence. But it was uh, his lifestyle. It, if you ter- talk about it in terms of lifestyle, it was such a fundamental readjustment. Like this is a guy who uh, during his injury was 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 banned by Alex Ferguson from going to the Manchester United Christmas party. And more than that, the rest of the Manchester United team were told that if they were seen drinking with Roy Keane on the night, they would be fined. Like this is, uh, like this is this is a central part of his life, which he then removes. And I think it's it's an incredible story that he removes it. Um, but I don't think we fully grasped it. Like I love all the details. I love listening to Dunphy talking about it. Like this is stuff because I I was you know this is stuff I would I hadn't always hadn't heard. But I'm also struck by. Um, like the, the 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 potency of the people, and this was something I remember thinking at the time: the potency of the people Keane had in his corner. You know, he had Eamon Dunphy on, as you pointed out, everywhere, arguing, getting the message across, talking about you know Keane in the in the in these heroic terms. He had Alex Ferguson in his corner, uh, who, let's be honest, probably was quite happy when Keane was coming home from Saipan, uh, and the FAI and Mick McCarthy couldn't compete with 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 it on on a on a PR basis in that ter- in that sense and then you know even when you go and this is the thing I think is is uh, also sometimes overlooked you look at that Tommy Gorman interview and Keane looks like Keane looks like Robert De Niro in The Godfather Part Two he's like he's he's so striking and magnetic um, and this this was a huge part of his attraction that he was actually a hugely charismatic person um and i think that's something that is often overlooked uh i'm also reminded when i started talking about keen in terms of that i remember i got a letter around about a month after saipan uh to the into the sunday independent where i work saying we just want to wish Dion fanning all the best with his forthcoming operation hopefully the advances in, mo- in modern so- in modern medicine and skilled surgeons 
can remove his tongue from Roy Keane's arse. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I always remember that one. So again, when when so it's uh, but then somebody at the weekend tweeted me saying, you know, you're not on Roy Keane, or you're maybe you won't be against Roy Keane anymore. So like you know, who knows what? Uh, but we... it's I think they're the things that. <laughs> I think about now, but I do find the details of it. I don't know how people feel about it. I find the details of it fa- like still interesting. I find how it convulsed us is kind of fascinating too, and the, the way it took over everything is is kind of extraordinary. Uh, did you have to fist fight Paul Kimmage for him to be allowed to go to Saipan instead of you? How, how did that play out? <laughs> um, I didn't know. I think that was. I don't remember. I again. I I don't remember. Uh, I remember being quite relaxed about not going. To yeah, it, was so, it was so irrelevant. Nothing is going yeah. to happen here. Well, no one like, needs to I go to this. Next, yeah, I was on the next flight. I, I was with. I was on a flight with Paul Howard, John O'Brien. I think David Walsh was on that flight. We were on the on the next, and I, I a few other. I've, I, I've a memory of Vincent Hogan being on it, but I'm not sure about that. Maybe Vinny was in Saipan, but um, I like. I do like. I remember being at the airport on the Thursday morning. We were flying out on the Thursday morning uh, and the Irish Times interview. We were reading the interview in Dublin airport. Um, and, you know, again, like how things have changed. Like that was Thursday morning reading that interview with no kind of prior awareness of it, really. Uh, whereas now you would know about that for, you know, since the Wednesday night. But reading it in, in Dublin airport. And I remember... <laughs> reading it kind of going yeah this is uh this is very interesting um but you know it seems okay yeah uh and then we, we had to get we were changing at uh in in Sheepall in amsterdam for the flight to tokyo and we landed at Sheepall, and the message came through that keen was gone um and the next tw- <laughs> 12 hours i just remember again just mi- mirroring everything everywhere the next 12 hours was just conversations endless conversations about what this meant and i can remember just spending hours in a in a just standing up on the plane talking with 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 paul and david walsh i just remember like the three of us and maybe a couple of other people just talking about it for hours like what this meant but again in a total vacuum because we were uh we were we were 12 hours uh in the air and then landed in tokyo and then flew to Ismo, where the Irish team had flown that day as well, because they they had obviously left on the Friday morning. Um, they they'd left before Keane did. They'd left Saipan on Friday and flown to Ismo. But um, no, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember uh, thinking there was anything. You know, there, there was much point in it. as a Sunday paper. You probably thought there's no point in sending two people to Saipan. Um, nothing nothing will happen there and. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the things that became striking over the next week, that there were, uh, like, even even that week, I was look, looking back at it last week, you know, Damien Duff said something on, as they left for, from Ismo, like, you know, there was this talk about, like, let's draw a line under it here. We've had a turbulent week, but it's time now to look <laughs> forward. And, you know, let's not talk about Saipan anymore. And throughout that week, they were kind of like, this is it now, lads, we'll put this to bed. And... Um, and if I fast forward for a minute, I remember being at the Stadium of Light at the end of August in 2002 when uh, when Manchester United were playing Sunderland. And before the game, as the players were as both 
teams were on the pitch warming up. Sunderland had a welcome home uh, ceremony for all their players who had been at the World Cup, which was basically Niall Quinn, Jason Mackett here, Kevin Kilban, and uh, and Roy Keane is warming up on the other side of, uh, on, on on the other <laughs> side and ends up. You know, getting getting sent off. Niall Quinn tries to shake his hand as he goes off. Alex Ferguson tells him to get lost. And you know, I remember thinking, "We're not done with Saipan. We're never going to yeah. be. We're never going to be done with Saipan." Yeah, like and the France game. Here we the, are. Remember the rant after the France game? That was all Saipan. Yeah, yeah. The, the legacy yeah. of it. like, I mean, the the, the FOMO on that playing Dion, I think, is probably more than any journalist has ever appreciated. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm interested. Like. Uh, I mean, Roy Keane, in a, in a clip we're about to play in a little while, in the DVD he brings out in 2002, refers to Paul Kimmage as a journalist he really respects and somebody he would give an interview to. Had the tables been turned, would you have secured that interview for the Sunday Independent, if you were the man sent to Saipan? If, would I have? Well, I think at that stage, now Keane, Keane talked to a couple of journalists, and I think one of them was, was Paul Kimmage, which is why Paul would have been going to Saipan. Okay. You, you had yet that to build be, up that relationship. Well, I don't think I ever built up that really. I think, by, like, you know, there were, I, I, what the relationship I ever had with Keane was always, you know, it was fine. Like, I, I but I, I would never say I had, uh, I think the people who, who built up the relationship with him in those years prior, you know, and I, Paul wrote about this at the weekend, like the years prior to that doing, uh, doing interviews, I think he, they built up that relationship then. And he became uh, like I, I had interviewed him once, and um, I had interviewed him once before before Saipan, and that was again. I was funny, like it was very easy to to get him to agree to the interview, and then it became that was it was in it was actually in when I, when United were playing Barcelona in the Champions League, in not in in Barcelona in '98, and he said, "Yeah, come along to the hotel and do it," and. Uh, and then actually finding anyone who was aware of this or agreed. I remember Manchester United saying, we don't know anything about this. He's not doing the interview. Uh, and uh, and uh, getting a little, I just hung around the hotel, team hotel for about six hours. When Keane came down to go for dinner, he said, what are you doing here? And he gave me some abuse for wa- wasting his time. And then I hung around the hotel a bit longer. And uh, he came out after his meal and walked straight across to me. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to get it again here now. And then... Very like Paul mentioned the thing. He didn't apologize, but he said kind of, oh, yeah, I was a bit gruff there with you earlier. Um, and he sat down and did an interview then. So like you, like everybody experienced the, um, the two sides of, of, of Keane. But I think, I think Paul would have, I don't think it would have been uh, as easy for anyone else to secure it or as, as it was for, for Paul Kimmage. Can we just go back to the bit you were saying um, that relitigating kind of misses the point? Is it your view that something was going to blow up anyway um, and whether or not it was big enough to self-sabotage his appearance at the World Cup is really all that's up for grabs in the discussion? Yeah. Yeah, more, more or less. I think there are... Yeah, I would say... Um, without knowing, and we still don't, we don't know everything, I don't think, but I, and I, I think the stuff we don't know is stuff that is going on in Roy Keane's head, which, you know, is, he is, as is his right, chosen to keep private. I, I don't mean anything uh, salacious in that. I mean, just how really he was feeling. Um, I think it would have been something. I think the, uh, uh, the, 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 that that sense of Keane 
just being a, a powder keg was 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 just something that was going to happen. Like Ale- Alistair Campbell, I remember referred to Keane as I remember him saying about Keane. He said he's a bit like me. He's a little dry drunkish, which means somebody who is uh, not drinking, but also still has a lot of kind of uh, anger and um, is, is, again, it's just is just can 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 go can explode at any moment. And I think that was what you were witnessing in Saipan. So if it wasn't what happened, if it wasn't those details, it may have been something else. Now we can go into, there are things you look back on and go, they're crazy, like having the, you know, I, I, I'm regretting actually saying this because it's like, you know, I, we are going to relitigate it, but having the, having the team meeting didn't seem to be the right way of managing this situation. <laughs> but I would say, especially given where you probably should have understood where Keane was um it was it it there might have been a way of managing it I don't think so I think there was it, it was potentially wherever they were whether they were if they were if they weren't in Saipan if they were on if they were in Japan if they were in Izumo which had beautiful facilities if they'd been there for two weeks would something have happened I think you know we don't know but I think there's a high degree of likelihood there would have something would have happened mm. For sure. Uh, let's just quickly play that clip then from, uh, as I see it, the uh, 2002 DVD from Roy Keane. Uh, you can see a, a picture there sporting the Ray-Bans at the time, style icon Roy Keane. Here's a clip from that DVD. I've been frustrated for many years now regarding with the Irish setup. I made a few points over there and a lot of people weren't happy with that and ended up with a, an argument with the manager because I think the book stops with the manager. I think it's his job to make sure things are right for the team, and it wasn't, and I said it, and there you have it. I'm in Portugal on my holidays. I couldn't believe we've, we've been to Saipan to train when the island doesn't have a football pitch. I must take out that full DVD, actually, and uh, watch the full thing. Uh, Dion Fanning, great stuff. Thanks a million for being with us this morning. Thanks, Alan. Uh, 12 minutes past nine, we're going to be joined uh, by David Connolly and Jason McIntyre very shortly. So things uh, are just getting good in our relitigation of uh, the Saipan saga. We'll be back in a few. OTB AM on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. The team of OTB are taking on a challenge. A challenge that requires fitness. A challenge that demands months of training and preparation. A challenge that requires knowing when to push and when to focus on recovery. Triathlons aren't easy, but having a fitness coach helps. Whoop! For helping us non-athletes... You need all the help you can get. Yeah, yeah, as I was saying, helping us non-athletes feel like pros in our challenge to complete a triathlon this summer. OTB Sports, in partnership with Whoop, unlock your inner potential with Whoop the personalised digital fitness and health coach that provides you with actionable feedback on your sleep, training, recovery and health. Check out whoop.com for more. This is Sport Ireland Campus and here is where it all starts. From the little ones learning to the high performance athletes leading. Here we go to play, to practice, to progress. Here is where communities in the nation come together to compete, to win and to belong. Here we go to the next level, then on to the world stage. This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here we go. Visit sportirelandcampus.ie to be a part of it. Things that put people off on a first date. Showing up late and getting your name wrong? Always a great start. Looking at their phone more than you? 
Uh, hello? Someone who only talks about themselves. Oh, really? God, aren't you great? Look, no one said dating is perfect, but at godating.ie, we promise we'll always try and find your perfect match. And if you sign up today, you'll get one week on godating.ie absolutely free. Yes, even you, socks and sandals guy. Go on, go for it with godating.ie. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's 9.15 this morning. We are talking about Saipan, I'm delighted to say. And the 20th anniversary, Jason McAteer and David Connolly are both with us. Gentlemen, good morning to you. No happier time do we as Irish football fans have than remembering uh, Saipan, Jason. I'm sure you're very happy to be with us. (laughs) You know that programme... um what was it? Room 101. Yeah. Where you could put th- you could put things that you didn't like into the locker and they were gone forever. Well, mine would be Saipan, the white suits uh, for Wembley and probably Roy Keane. Oh! Keane makes it all the way in. Right. You left the best one to last there. So obviously, uh, you've, you've uh, nailed your colours to the mask very quickly there, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, we've relived it a million times and, you know, we're still going over it now. I, I know, like, and Dave's account of it will be different than mine 20 years on, I'm sure. Um, you know, we all recollect in different ways, don't we, and pick out the bits that we want to remember. You know, I I was, you know, I, I quite vividly know my story because I've told it a million times. I'd be interested to know what Dave's is, actually, because um, I, I don't think I've heard Dave's. But I'll... Um, I'll sit and wait. Well, let's let's go. You, you've um, you've you've come in here. You've you've got your presenter hat on, asking the best questions, making us uh, feel a bit of shame. David Connolly, feel free to just answer Jason McAteer's question. How are you? Good morning to you. But go on, go for it. <laughs> morning, yeah, morning, guys. I mean, I look at, uh, exactly like Jason. The reason is I, Jason probably hasn't heard is, and and even when I was asked to do this, I have the same feeling as Jason. You know, oh, come on, you know, it, it, it's it's tiresome. To, to go over it um, and you know maybe my account is is a little bit different but I, my account is is I guess pretty similar to everyone else's although um, I think in the Ireland squad at that time like players like Jason obviously were at the very you know competing on Roy's level and I, I was maybe not quite there so I would at times look up to players like Jason and Roy you know and I would probably give a lot of respect to those players, the, the, the ones that operate at the very highest level and probably, you know, I know Jason maybe might say he didn't, you know, have Roy, whatever, how Roy was. But I think I would, I would always try and look at those players and go, you know, right, okay, as a player, they had a, a lot of those players, I had, had an awful lot of respect for them. Um, and I think, you know, for Roy... <clears throat> I could, I guess, I'd, I'd a sense of loyalty to Mick because Mick was really good to me. But I, I also had a respect for players like Roy or, or Jason, you know. And and I think, <clears throat> you know, for example, on the flight over, I sat next to Roy, and I remember when we got the plane tickets. <laughs> I remember we got the plane tickets. I was putting my luggage down, and I turned around, and all the lads were looking at me as if, you know, ah, uh, you've got the short straw there, you know, sixteen hours <laughs> sitting next to Roy. But you know, <clears throat> in effect. In effect, you know, like Roy, as Jason would tell you, maybe, you know, Roy could be great company. He could be fabulous company, very quick-witted. And, and actually, you know, the flight sort of zoomed by. 
And also, you know, we shared the same sort of solicitor. Don't get me wrong. Our solicitor, Michael Kennedy, would often tell me, I remember he told me once after an Ireland game, Roy says we're carrying you. And, and you know, so like the, the respect what? was there, but, but, but there was also, there was also- Go back, go, sorry, go back to that. So Roy told Michael Kennedy, <laughs> with the kind of express intention of him telling you, Roy says we're carrying you. No, no, not with the express intention, but obviously I would talk to Michael like every week. Right. And, and, and you know, you've got to remember within the Ireland squad then there was probably, you know, at times you might be clinging on to a place in that squad. You know, because, you know, in terms of... In <laughs> what terms about, of what they, about solicitor-client privilege where he's, like, breaking Roy's privilege? No, he, no. I think, I, think, I think you took that... I think you took that because often the training pitch was a brutal place, right? right. If, you can't hand, if you can't handle it, you shouldn't be there, you know. So it was Jason friendly advice. It was friendly advice. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. Jason would tell you all this about wrapping the ball into the front, you know, are they able to handle it, all this sort of stuff. But, but cut a long story short, you know, I ended up, uh, sort of being in the room next to Roy, uh, but one, I think, but one. Um, and, and all these little things where, you know, you'd end up, it borrowed DVD or, 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 you know, there may be, Jason was at Liverpool, Roy was at United. There were, I guess the, it was different, you know, that's why probably the stories are different. I could understand Roy's perspective, but also have loyalty to Mick. It, it was, it was, it was, I think it was difficult for, for some players of the squad to, 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 to be necessarily one camp or the other. Do you get what I mean? I didn't agree with what Roy did. And ironically, uh, uh, Jason will probably tell this, but I was filming everything. Um, I saw yeah, yeah. a video. Well, maybe you, you, could make, I, you could make millions out of that. We'll make a film. Well, th- th- exactly right. So I had been asked this. So I was, you probably can't remember, Jason, but I mean, Kenny would film, Trey. I don't remember Kenny was injured and, and I gave him the camcorder. And I was actually filming prior, we're up in the room before the meeting was called. And we just, the lads just messing around, training, playing cards, doing, you know, doing the usual, like the usual sort of stuff, just for a bit of a laugh, you know. And um, we put the camera down and obviously after the meeting, we're all kicked off. The same lads, I think it's Kevin Kilban, Shay, we all came back up into the same room. And they went, don't you dare put that camera on. You know, I am not talking. And, you know, we were so close to to sort of even having a camera, because it used to come everywhere just for a bit of a, you know, just to you know, remember. I've got to be honest, 20 years later, I have not looked at it. I couldn't even tell you where the cameras are, where the, where the you know, the films are. But, you know, it was, um, it was time for me, obviously, just to remember. And it was a great occasion to, to make the squad and make the World Cup. But I guess from my recollection, it might be slightly different to Jay's, right? Because some players were, were, were you know, in direct... They might be coming up against Roy and kicking seven bells out of Roy, whereas maybe I wouldn't be because I was playing in a championship. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Mm. So you had a different relationship. As a matter of interest, did you all have uh, individual rooms or were you sharing rooms in Saipan? We all, as Jason would tell you, we all shared, like, uh, uh, apart from Roy, probably. <laughs> apart from Roy, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all had our, our set roommates. And to be honest, that was one of the best things probably after. I think we used to trash Jason's room or soak the bed or, you know, the usual stuff you do is... is as lads, you know, messing around. <laughs> uh, so I had the short straw. I, I ended up rooming with Steve Stone. Uh, so I used to get good night's sleep every night once he started talking about his Liverpool career and that. And I was gone. I was away. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you know what he used to do? Seriously, he used to ring his dad and like be on the phone for hours and he'd be trying to get to sleep. And obviously the time difference didn't help. And he'd be ringing his dad for hours just talking about nothing. 
and I'd be like, Stan, any chance? You know, we're training in the morning and, you know, just got to sleep. I thought Alan Kelly used to talk to his dog, didn't he? That's what I heard. I mean, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> There's a few of them. Roy used to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think the thing as well, I think it does sound like a bit like a witch hunt when we always talk about it because it's an individual against the collective, isn't it? And we've all got our own opinions about whether it was right or wrong. And I think the bottom line is, I think as we grow older, we understand that, you know, Roy had a point. You know, what he was asking for or what he was demanding was to make things better, which obviously would in his head, give us the opportunity to play better or to, to be better or prepare better or whatever it may be. So it probably was the best intentions. It was just how it was managed. It was just how it was put over. Um, and you throw into the mix, you know, we'd, we'd had a drink, I think, before the flight out to Saipan. We were allowed to go out. So, you know, the flight then was long and tedious. Um, it was difficult. We then landed. So on top of that, you're tired. And then you know what you like when, you know, you're tired. You know, if it doesn't, if, it's, if things aren't going your way, then you get moody and you get narky. And, you know, he quickly, he quickly sort of fell off the cliff, really, in terms of where his head was. And he was rooming on his own, which I always think, I mean, they do it now, but I always think it's nice to have someone in the room to sound off to. I mean, Steve Staunton, I had a few moments in that campaign where, you know, I wanted to go home, I got injured, and Steve Staunton taught me round, or I had a problem maybe with one of the lads. I had a problem with Kenny at one point. Steve Staunton calmed me down. So Roy didn't have that. Roy, Roy went to four walls where he just stewed and festered and went over the points over and over and over. And in the end, it's like a kettle. It just, it just went. It just blew up. And unfortunately, it was in a meeting with 24 lads um, and in front of the manager. So, um, you know, the outcome is, is what it was. And I think he does touch on that in the initial Irish Times interviews where he kind of does allude to the fact that he is quite isolated in his room, but there are positives and negatives from his own mindset. But David, not to, to, to labour on the, the flight too much, but Jason does point to the fact that, you know, that there was a couple of drinks had at the airport. Roy himself like was pissed off around a couple of leprechauns approaching him at the airport. He, he, he <laughs> was, that, that kettle had started to boil on that flight. So I'm interested, like, did you notice anything while sitting beside no, him on that flight? No, no. And look, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of the lads, I mean, I can't remember, say, having a drink, but a lot of the lads, you know, often the best players are the ones that could have a drink. And, and, you know, but uh, I was certainly not one of them. I had to really, you know, I was a little bit different like that, you know. Um, I didn't notice Troy have anything. What what I can recall is that we played a a -a five-a-side when we got there and and the goalkeepers, Jason would do a tell you this as well the goalkeepers often they do individual work right you know so they go off and um you know do an extra bit handling etc but but for ireland the key thing would be like at united right where they always played whatever seven aside five aside because i noticed because when roy took over at sunderland we would play a seven aside game every day like every day however many Eight aside, yeah, seven. It doesn't matter, you know. It would always be a small sided game, right? With two goalkeepers and two goals, and there was a lot put on that game, like there would be in in Ireland, because you know, again, Jason will would tell you that we'd often have a vote at the end of training who was the worst, the worst player, and and a lot of it would hinge on that game at the end. If someone, you know, was taken to the cleaners, if somebody missed an open goal, you know, they get voted for the worst player. Now, when we went to 
Saipano, where we had a we had a, 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 a small-sided gameplay, and we had to play it without goalkeepers because the goalkeepers already worked themselves to the bone and Paki had said that they weren't to play. Now, I can completely understand why Roy lost, lost sort of his mind over that um, because that's the one thing you look forward to, right, when you're a player, is then mm. you do all the pre-stuff and then you come to the game and you don't play the game. And, you, you know, so it just so happened, like, when that kicked off, I remember being right there when it kicked off in the meeting room. I was sat next to Roy just by coincidence as you come in and sit down. So, <clears throat> but in, in a lot of ways, it could have been avoided. Like, it, it, it could have been avoided. The, the goalies should be ready to go and play in the game. You know, because ask the goalies, they want to play in the game as well, right? They don't want to flog themselves to death. And we don't want to play with no goalkeepers. I can't even remember if we played with an outfielder in goal or we just used poles or... Uh, I, I can't recall, but I, I can recall that it, it kicked off and it was because we didn't have goalkeepers. So that added to it. Let's just play another clip from the Roy Keane DVD from later on in 2002 again. Uh, here he is on the beach in Portugal talking about uh, you guys, talking about his teammates. Uh, you'd be delighted to hear this, David and Jason. Have a listen. It's one or two players sitting in a press conference saying, oh, we couldn't believe it. And These lads, you know. Muppets, Muppets. It's only way I can describe them. To sit there and to say what they said about me. Hypocrites, you know, these lads. Cowards. Cowards sums them up. And I mean that, I will not go back on that. This DVD is recorded, I would say, weeks after Saipan, because it's in the summertime mm. when he's on holidays in Portugal and he's not, obviously he goes back training and maybe a bit of injury, maybe there's a, a break later in the year, but it's literally in the immediate aftermath, probably while the World Cup is actually happening. Yeah, well, like, he, I think, yeah. yeah, I think he says in the, the DVDs, like, uh, such and such happened, uh, had to leave um, Saipan, now I'm in Portugal. So it does feel as if it's very, very immediate afterwards. So... I'm not sure, like, Jason, when do you first become aware of this DVD and what he said in it? I didn't even know there was a DVD. Is this his own DVD? Yeah, yeah, Christmas, uh, Christmas, My Side, or what's it called? Um, uh, sorry. My Story or something. As I See It. As I See It, yeah. Uh, Jay, it must have gone in the stocking, Jason, that one, yeah? It must have gone in the Christmas stocking. <laughs> must have. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a DVD. Oh, I'll have to watch that. Have a laugh. A DVD um, and a book. Wow. Um, yeah, I, it must have been done straight after. He's, he's obviously still fuming, isn't he? And he's, um, you know, he's obviously having a pop. I mean, we, we do have we do have a very similar clip from about three years ago where he says almost exactly the same thing. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he's over it then. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I ended up doing the press conference. I can't believe I got even asked to do it. Um, I think it was me, Quinny, Stan, and. I think maybe Alan Kelly might have done it. He was the senior pros in the in the thing. I I didn't have anything to add. I was just sort of there. I don't even know why I was asked to be honest. But I, I sat on the table, um, and Steve Staunton and Quinny Quinny's a politician, and he just he sort of batted all the questions off really. Well, I, I felt I felt there listening to it. He he obviously felt a lack of support, didn't he? And like I said, you know we can all sit there and like Dave said and point fingers at goalkeepers not training or the kit not arriving or not going to Saipan or not having a training pitch but it is what it is and sometimes you've just got to take it on the chin and you know when I I used to come back to Anfield and I used to listen to the, the England stories about what they used to get given the training facilities how they prepare for games and it was so far removed from what we what we had under Jack uh, and even Mick, you know, staying in the airport hotel, 
training on the training pitch where the planes were going over, you couldn't hear tactics being shouted or teams being selected. Um, you know, we weren't really given anything. You know, the kit was, you felt it was England's second kit because they were Umbro as well. You know, it was kind of hand-me-downs kind of thing. But I always felt that's what made us the, the set of lads that we were. It, it kind of brought us together. It was a, a good team spirit, a good harmony um, we had in the camp. Because of these moments, we'd laugh about it. We'd just get on with it. It kind of made us, made us, I think, the team we were, which was difficult to be, you know, collectively very strong. We'd look after each other. We'd run through brick walls for each other. And in turn, that produces results. On top of that, we had a, we had a sprinkling of world-class talents in Duffer and, and Robbie, and the rest were made up of very, very good players. And I think Roy, you know, coming from the Man United background with Sir Alex was probably, you know, very demanding for preparation and, you know, meticulous when it comes to, you know, to looking at things and doing things. And, and it obviously, it rubbed off on Roy. And plus the nature of what Roy was as a person, you know, himself, you know, he was, um, he demanded the best and, and we seen the best of him, you know, just before kickoff where he would demand the best performances from everyone on the pitch. But off it, I mean, he was always going to clash with different personalities. We clashed. We clashed because of Liverpool, Man United. We clashed because we were the same age. We clashed because we were different personalities. It's, it's just what it was. I mean, I, I'm certainly not a coward. If he's alluding to me, I'm, I'm certainly not a coward. But um, did you? Am I not right I in saying know. you actually did call to his room afterwards? Yeah, I did. Yeah, but it wasn't to ask him to stay. <laughs> He'd lent something off me, so <laughs> I wanted it back. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I we, I think you've door. told the story of what it was, Jason. I think it's okay. You can, you can remind everybody who is unaware of what. He, he borrowed a film off me, so I, um, <laughs> the English so patient, I, I think, back. wasn't it? <laughs> it's too early in the morning, Jay. It's only yeah. half nine. Um, yeah, so I, I did knock on his door, and, and you know what? It was, and Dave will tell you. You're sitting in this room. I'd never experienced anything like that. I'd experienced fights individually in, play, in the in the training ground, in the dressing room. I'd you know I'd, I'd witnessed you know other things that go on in football behind the scenes. Um, that you would raise an eyebrow now, but I'd I'd never seen it go off just before a World Cup, you know, in a national team with all the players, staff, management, everyone there, where you know one player is is screaming at the manager and the manager's shouting back, and it was just surreal. It was just absolutely surreal, and, and I don't think no one knew how to handle handle the situation. I mean, we talk about oh, Mick should have done this and Roy should have done that and the players should have done this. It's one of them moments you don't know until you're in it. And it kind of, the dust settled within minutes. I remember Dean Kiley cracking a joke um, about playing midfield. It kind of kind of settled everyone. And then we all went off to our rooms. And, and like Dave said, you know, it was, you know, they were all sitting around, shocked the younger players. But, I mean, they'd never witnessed it. So for me, you know, I, I went into the room with Steve Staunton. We were talking about it and... You know, I knocked on his door and Mick Bain was in there trying to trying to sort it out with him. Um, and I, I honestly thought he'd be on the bus in the morning. I honestly thought he would be calmed down and he'd come on the bus with a tail between his legs. But we left at, I think, nine or eight days, was it, in the morning? And that was it. He's gone. Well, that was done. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. I think we're all worried about him going off with our DVDs because he had one of mine as well. So I had to knock on his door. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I um, 
we're worried about Blockbuster and a few fines. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jason, you mentioned um, taking it on the chin. Uh, taking it on the chin literally is something that uh, I guess uh, probably happened when you faced off against Roy at the start of the following season. And Dion was on with us a few minutes ago. I'm not sure did he hear it. He was talking about that uh, that homecoming for the Sunderland players when Manchester United were in town. And obviously yourself and, and Roy get into a bit of a, a heated exchange during that match. Do, do you remember, like, what... what uh, sorry, yeah, the... the, the sticking yeah, in your the book, right? Hands, uh, sticking yeah. in your book, yeah. Um, what, like, was, that, was everything that happened there clear for everybody to see? Was there anything that happened in the tunnel? What, what, what's your recollection from, from everything that happened on, on that afternoon and, and the spillover from Saipan? Well, I knew he was, he was going round... Um, because obviously we joined up a couple of times and a few, few of the lads had had stories about him going to, I think, Matty Holland. Had, had, he'd been through Matty Holland, hadn't he, during a game. I don't know where it was, John or Ipswich, wherever Matty was. Um, I think Harty had got it as well in one game against Leeds. Um, so we knew he was on the warpath kind of thing. Um, anyway, his, his book had come out the, the, the week that we played Man United and it was a big game up at the stadium of light. You know, full house. You know, Man United coming to town is always a big occasion up there. And um, I went into the dressing room and one of the lads had put his book on my spec, on my towel and shorts. So, um, obviously, we were all laughing about it. And, and I actually got one of the kids who were on duty, um, dressing room duty, to go and wait outside the dressing room and get it signed. So, we went off and got it signed and come back. And... Um, Anyway, we, we put it down. Anyway, I, I don't remember anything apart from the incident, which was I was playing centre midfield. It kind of ball bounced. Nothing had really happened. Um, I think I'd just, they'd scored, and I think I'd just set, I'd run off him and, and got the equaliser. I, I kind of went round the keeper and, and played the ball in and saw Andre Flo, I think, had scored the goal uh, to equalise. And the, the stadium was up, and we were on top. And the ball bounced in the middle of the park and he's knit round me and stuff and we've I've grabbed him, we've both gone to ground and just come together. And he was telling me what he was gonna to do to me, he was gonna rip my head off, he was gonna do that. I mean he was he'd gone. Like the mist had come down and he'd gone. And uh, you know, in them situations I'm I'm always I'm quite good actually. I'm quite like quite calm but quite quick witted. I don't know what it, I think it's the scouts in me. And um I kind of just was telling him, yeah, listen, I'll read about it in your next book. And I was like, yeah, write it all down. And I was gesturing, you know, to write it down. I was just goading him, to be honest. But the thing, the thing is, is like Roy, Roy will do anything to win, anything to win, which is, you know, for me as an elite sportsman, I get it because I'd do anything to win. And you do, you do things differently, whether that's off the ball, you give someone a little dig or you wind them up you know, with your mouth, with the banter, whatever it is to get an advantage. That's that's how it was back then. Um, and it was no holds barred, by the way. I mean, it was some of the things that were said were disgusting. But that's what that's what happened on the football pitch. And, you know, that's what you had to live with. So, you know, for me to try and, you know, wind him up and get the better of him, you know, was part of the game. And I always thought, you know, after the game, we'd probably just shake hands over it and it was kind of, well done, mate. You know, you give your best, I give your best and we move on from here. But, you know, the incident happened, he, his, his head come off. I mean, thank God Uriah Rennie, who was a black belt in Karate at the time, was uh, was refereeing because I think he would have actually ripped my head off had he got near me. But Uriah was standing in the middle of us. And then, um, and then he kind of calmed down and then 
the game was filtering out and it was there was a corner and it got cleared and we were running out and he just come past me and he went bang blindsided me and elbowed me in the side of the head and I kind of went down but not like you know I never died or went went down it was just more of a bit of a shock thing and Beckham come over and a few of the lads come over and it all he just walked he knew straight away he'd been sent out he just walked off straight away Quinny Quinny tried to like go over and put his arm around him and I don't know what Quinny was up to maybe he had a DVD he wanted back I don't know um, <laughs> but uh, he, he he went off and then the next day uh, the News of the World rang me and offered me a, a few quid actually to do a big story on him and I declined the offer because it wasn't you know it, it was it was it wasn't enough. Me and Roy, it was nothing to do <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you know I, I thought we would we would kind of shake on it and you know time as a good healer as it is would, would kind of settle it all down but you know we <laughs> That, that incident and the way we are together is, is still the same today. It's still the same today. It's, you know, he's, there's no love lost. You've, have you seen uh, him since? You know, Was there ever a... Uh, loads, yeah, loads of times. Bumped into him on a plane. I've held the door open for him at Wembley. I've seen him in a restaurant about three or four months ago. Right. He was on a table, like three three tables down from me with his family. He didn't bat an eyelid. And, yeah, you know, it, it's up to him. If he wants to hold it for the rest of his life, then that, that's, that's, you know, I... I can't change his mind. It's up to him. But, you know, what I would say is, you know, if I've done anything to upset him, I apologise. Um, you know, but I'm 50 years of age now. I, I don't need to be worrying whether Roy Keane's going to send me a, a, a Christmas card or a birthday card. But it is what it is. Um, David, last one for you. When you went to get your DVD back, was there a conversation or was it like cursory, straight in, straight out? No, no, no. No, no, there, there was a conversation... Um... <clears throat> you know, but <clears throat> I think I went with uh, with Gary Breen, and he was like, "No, no, you know, and my mind's made up, and I'm I'm done." So you did um, you did actually try and talk him out out of it, or like some kind of uh, here, listen, you know, maybe this could all be smoothed over. Yeah, no, no, you wouldn't say, t- you know, you uh, we're not we're all we're not idiots, you know. You're not going to talk someone around an an elite performer, one of the best players in the world, you know who. Who has done something? You, you know, you, you're not stupid enough to think you're going to change his mind, you know. But, but because we're so close, like I said, I think we're next door. And um, uh, but the, you, you just knew that wasn't going to, you know, that 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 wasn't really going to going to change. Um, and you don't become the player that you know that he was or Jason, or you don't get to any of these levels if unless you've got that self belief and and that will to win. And, and hunger and desire, which kind of at times can spill over. You don't get that. You can't, I guess, for Royce or any so a lot of players switch it on and off, right? You are who you are. And uh, if he didn't have that, he might not be the player. Well, he probably wouldn't be the player that he was. Yeah. So you you kind yeah. of, it's, it, you know, you, you, and in some ways I respect his position in not changing. I also respect Jason's in terms of, Jason was pretty vocal. Um, it doesn't, you know, uh, and his, they both had their sort of line in the sand. And I think, as ironically, I think Roy would respect Jason a lot for sticking with his his belief, his opinion on no, you were right. Like Roy thinks he was right, and and I guess that's where that's where we are in all this, you know. So I think that is exactly where we are in all this. Is that um, it, it, it 
it did happen and uh, the fallout was the fallout but nobody's ever going to really change their mind about it and there's no point in really getting it but it is definitely interesting to kind of see it's this massive hinge point in, in Irish football thanks to both of you for being um, for being on the show this morning because I when we were talking about doing this I was like do we have to do we really have to talk about this again uh, yeah. hopefully this is the last time ever or maybe it just becomes um, until com- the 21st anniversary stick <laughs> <laughs> We'll all get together. I'll buy that. We all That's exactly party. what we should do. We should go back to Saipan and, and you can all react, yeah, react, it. reenact it. Yeah, it can be the dramatic uh, reconstruction for um, the movie that uh, David's making. Not wrong, mate. Can I can I play myself in it, Dave? <laughs> yep, yep, definitely. Yeah, the Botox these days, right. Jason, is miraculous. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I'd love to see them tapes. I'd love to see it. Well, what, what, yeah, the, what are you yeah, going to do with quickly. them, David? I'm going to make you an offer right now. What are you going to do with them? We will definitely well, produce that documentary for you. Yeah, I've had. I, ironically, I've had a few offers. You know, um, if I can, if I, they are in the loft. And not of my house, but of my parents, um, and and you know they passed away. So that will be, I will be going up in that loft at some point in the near future, digging those tapes out, and uh, we'll see what they're like. You know, they're probably there's probably not a camcorder that can play them. You know, so long ago, I don't know. But anyway, we'll we'll find one somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, you, do you still have the DVDs that you lent Roy Keane as well? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, that, the good job Blockbuster went bust, you know. So. <laughs> That's why. It's you too. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks a million, folks. Cheers. Cheers, Thanks, guys. boys. Take Take care. Care. Right. That was great. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Our first roadshow in nearly three years is here. The football pod have added a Mayo legend to the lineup for Castle Bar on the 2nd of June. It's the biggest game of the opening round of the qualifiers. It's Mayo against Monaghan. Joining Paddy and James at the Royal Theatre is a man they had several battles with on big days at Croker. It's Keith Higgins. A brilliant night of football chat to focus on. Uh, tickets are 20 quid plus booking fees. Go to otbsports.com forward slash events. Uh, the 2nd of June in Castlebar. We're back tomorrow with Matt Williams, Anthony Moyes in studio on the fifth episode of Have You Seen with Joe Conroy and much more. See you then.